This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, uh, Ankh Ujab Seneb. I'm going to do that this morning. Hello, hello, Dr. Carr. Nubians everywhere, non-Nubians, and those who are, who are becoming Nubians. I think we're all Nubians, though. No question. The yeah. Nubians, uh, the Nubians, we, we're working out something now where we can figure out how to have a more formal connection with uh, the Nubians, at least on Elephantine Island. So they are excited and we, need, we didn't even talk about it yet, but they want to, um, they want to adopt us as Nubians with an end. We just got to figure out formally what that means because they got schools, they got program. Anyway, so yeah, that, that's right. Can we get a passport? Well, I mean, you would have to be an Egyptian passport. And, and you know, a lot of us have can get passports and don't. So, you know, but yeah, that, that well, you know, the AU, the African Union is working on that. They already mm -hmm. have the diplomatic passport. And uh, the question is, can we get our act together in the diaspora? Um, I imagine that if and when those passports come, there's going to be a little wavering among the American descendants of slavery since they just want the passport of their master. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take a passport that'll let me go anywhere in Africa. And I suspect many of them will too. And you know, so, so what that does. So when, when you're traveling, mm -hmm. you know, you could use either or how, how does that work? Dr. Carr. And then well, actually, there. funny, funny 60 second story. We were the first time I took students to South Africa, this would have been 2004 or five. Um, we got to Cape Town, flying from D.C., from John Foster Dulles, and we came in to check in through customs, and the guy stopped me because my passport had a little, uh, a little not tear, but it was peeling a little bit at the top right-hand corner because I carried my passport at that point everywhere because they said, I, I'm getting, I'm leaving. <laughs> but anyway, so I carried my passport like a driver's license. Anyway, but I always kept it around, so it was fraying a little bit. This brother said, I can't let you in. I said, what do you mean? Now, I got all my students on the other side. I'm coming. I'd always go last, even this time. Get off the plane last, blast one in, make sure everybody we ain't leaving nobody. So the end of the story is this. One of my students, who is now a lawyer, uh, works in Newark, has worked with the federal government, uh, with the state government, Rasparaka and them, Chigozie Onyema, brilliant brother. His mom and daddy, Nigerian. So... I told Chigozie, I'm going to call the embassy. No problem. They'll get her. But in the meantime, you go around here and gather everybody else. Chigozie grabs his Nigerian passport, <laughs> goes through, gets all the bags. I mean, he had the U.S. passport. But he said, you know, just a flex. Basically, we laugh about that to this day. That was 20 years ago. <laughs> so, yeah, I, mean, I said, you had your passport. He said, bro, I don't never travel nowhere with, without all my passports. <laughs> he got a Nigerian passport and the U.S. like so many others. I'm sure. What's the sister on Insecure? Um, uh, oh, like OG, orgy? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, orgy. Uh, orgy. Oh, I'm sure she got two. Most Nigerian Americans got two passports, and their kids got two passports. And why not? Jamaicans, you know, I mean, you know, Senegalese, they got several passports. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Issa Rae don't have a couple because her daddy's Senegalese. Right. She probably got Senegal passport. They don't always say it, <laughs> but you know, so Barbie can get out of here once you know you realize that black Barbies is an oxymoron. She can use Ooh. her uh, passport and go home. <laughs> One of the th things, first of all, thank you so much for sharing everyone in, in Nubia, sharing so many images and videos. And, yes. you know, I felt like I was there. Uh, it was lovely, lovely to see. Um, and we shared a little taste last week. Uh, but you also said there was a a relief being in a space where you didn't have to be warm, you know. 
And and I and you made me think about how I'm warm all the damn time. Like I'm warm, I'm warm, not just against white racism, against you know, black and anti-blackness and black people, you know, like I'm constantly on guard waiting for, you know, you know, it's like folk always have a critical word and something negative to say, like, this is a very toxic space that we're in. And maybe it's just a period of time. I don't think it's always been this way. Cause I remember being a child and not having this feeling. I remember the eighties uh, and the nineties. It wasn't, just, wasn't like this then, like this is, this is, um, you know, one of those waves that we're in, but it's really is exhausting. And it's, and, and you're constantly like, you know, ready to fight. And I don't want to be ready to toss a hat in the air. I just don't mm. I just, uh, look for a chair. Hey, that's that some bars. Let me write that down. Look for a chair, right? You don't toss a hat in the air and look for a chair. No, we use chairs to sit. Yeah. I mean, when I'm looking at Tutankhamun's throne or looking at the birthing seat mm. uh, where they demonstrate the proper way for a woman to give birth, uh, those are the kind of chairs I'm interested in. And not once, with the exception of conversation about Montgomery from here to there, and not once did Donald Trump name come up or Moms for Liberty. No discussion of uh, the tramp stamp uh, from Colorado or her wrestling friend from uh, Georgia. No conversation about any of that. Race is not an issue. Race was not an issue in that way. Certainly not the U.S. version of race. because And, and we typically back map that European racialization and our responses to it, to the whole world. So we come into place, we looking for the black people. And again, you know, the whole idea of whether the Egyptian is black, that's not the question you ask. Don't bring that race stuff over here. As my friend Shamarka Keita, um, scientist who does work on Nubia in particular, talk, says he doesn't use word race. He used the word populations. So you say, well, what populations were in the Nile Valley? Not what races, because they wouldn't have understood race. And, and it doesn't make any sense. Race is an invention of the last few centuries and the American Negro is under perpetual stress. And uh, yeah, James Baldwin saw Sheikh on the joke present. And he said, I wasn't quite interested. It didn't really animate my imagination. And I said, of course it didn't, James, because you're obsessed with race, bro. Race has ruined you. It's one reason why I, I, I enjoy Baldwin's prose. I think he has a lot of insight around race. But after reading the brilliant prose about race the fifth time, I'm like, okay, I, I'm done. I don't need to read this again or Ralph Ellison for that matter or Rich. I don't really need to read that. And I don't need to, I don't need to think about why you feel free in Paris and why you feel, free, you know, or Germany or you stranger in the village. I understand it. I, I, I appreciate it. I love you. I appreciate you, but I'm going somewhere where I can think about the larger issues of being human, of reality of time. In fact, it drew, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. It reminded me of something E. Franklin Frazier grappled with shortly before he died. And uh, yeah, we didn't think about that one time. And when you land a plane and everybody clap because you ain't supposed to be in the air and you come back to the United States and you realize that's not what they do here, you understand culture is a much more powerful thing to organize around than race. So how do we, how do we, I mean, I know we, we are doing it and it's kind of like, I, I keep encouraging people to build the world in which they want to live, starting with their neighborhood, right? Because we all live somewhere. So you can, you can literally create the world you want to live in, right? And it's work. It's work, you know, you're gonna have to get up and do some things. But how do we mentally, because it is it is a, a battlefield of your mind that we're really grappling with. And you change the world by changing your mind, by, by changing your mind and 
you know, I'm, you know, I'm zero tolerant with, with how I allow people to interact with me. Right. I'm zero tolerant. Y'all call what you want. You know, she's mean. She what? no, no, I respect and value myself enough that you will, will not disrespect and devalue anything that I do. So yeah, I'm going to come, I'm going to come for your neck, but it's exhausting. I'm gonna let you know. So I'd rather block you than engage in a back and mm-hmm. forth with somebody that, that hasn't done the work to even be in, in, in a conversation, you know, like you want to challenge something and you haven't read, you ain't, you ain't lived, but you, you have opinions, you know, and these opinions should be valued in the wake of what, and what's your goal with your opinions to be mm-hmm. right. Like at the end of the day, we have to have a goal and the goal should be liberation for all. So free yourself before you come into, into these spaces for yourself and the rest will follow. That's you know, right. I think in Vogue said that, uh, maybe there's somebody said it before them, free your mind. I think George, um, George Clinton might have said it too. Yeah, I know, I know. This is a generational thing. I apologize to No, 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 but, but both of them said it to your point. No question. So, yeah, no, I'm just, I've, I'm, I've been reflecting since you've been gone. I've missed you, by the way. I you know, you. it's like, I'm like, oh. Although for the folks, we was we, we, we didn't miss a beat. Now, I did miss all the money because I was in the air. If there had been a way to do it from there, I would have. But we I know. So, so we, we called an audible, brought Michael Harriet into Nubia. We did a I was watching Dreptomania, yes. Dreptomania, yeah, we had oh, a. Is it Dreptomania, Dreptomaniacs? Right. It's no, it's draped the main. I think it's draped the mania. Is it draped the man? Damn it. Just let me. Look. I don't know because I, I was listening to the uh, podcast, the one he did with uh, Yvette Brown and and uh, Charlemagne, I think, was in that one. So, oh, you listened to that one? I refuse to listen to that one because Charlemagne was in that one. Well, one thing I must tip my hat to <laughs> Mike Harriet is that he has a capacity and a generosity of spirit that I simply didn't get that gene. So Mike can dance with those cats and maybe get some out of them. I, you know, life's too short. I don't have any more breaths I got used and I'm not going to spend any money. I'm arguing with a cat that's called itself after a medieval European Holy Roman Empire. But as if that's an honorific. I'm just not. I mean, I'm sure the brother's very nice. And who knows? Maybe one day we'll talk. But I respect Mike for that. Mike. Mike will talk with all of them. So yeah, I listened to it. I mean, I you know, to y'all more importantly. That was that. It was a great session. No question. All right. And again, you know, I understand why. Uh, and it's Drapedomania with an X at the end. Okay, the right. X is red, red, unshackled history. Uh, it is skit, uh, you know, part spoken word. It's like, you know, a, a dramatization of things that have happened, real things that have happened. And, and uh, it's a podcast and it's different. It's different music. It's all kinds of stuff. Rap verses, oh, yeah. like things happening. Yvette Nicole Brown was in the one that we were uh, listening to uh, in Nubia. We, we, and the Nubians commented. Not everybody, uh, you know, liked it. And that's, you know, but there was a respect in the, in the criticism, which I appreciated uh, as well. And to your point, in, in terms of talking to everybody, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think when we talk to people, we validate them. You know, okay. That maybe I, 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 was, I was watching. Yes. A, a Let's do that. <laughs> no, I, I was watching a spectacular conversation that Henry Louis Gates opened up, and then uh, Shalane Hunter Galt moderated. Uh, I guess this was at Martha's Vineyard a couple of days ago on affirmative action, and you know, very much struck by how narrow and insular the American Negro's view of the world is. And when Skip Gates said that it was W.B. Du Bois's vision to integrate society from the top down through the elites, I, mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I know Professor Gates's opinion on these kind of things, but it was a great bracing reminder that I'm wasting my time. You know, academics would debate those kind of things. John McWhorter was there. Randall Kennedy was there. Several other people. And it's an interesting conversation, but it was so thoroughly irrelevant to the lives of the vast majority of our people. 
that it was a reminder that most conversations like that are irrelevant to the vast majorities of our people. And I wouldn't go so far as Adolf Reed, who said in the 1619 Project, it isn't about structural change for projects like that. It's about making sure that 12% of the 1% are Black. But I wouldn't go that far. But I would stop just short of it when we keep reinforcing this idea that our expectations are pegged to the social structure. In other words, that's, you know, I wrote an article many years ago called What Black Studies Is Not. And I said what it's not is an attempt to appeal for our humanity. So most of what we see that passes for mass media, entertainment, news commentary is people trying to prove to white people that we're human. Who say, That's not true. Well, if it's not true, how come all of the narratives are about the first Negro to do this, the first Negro to do that? I just came back from where the first humans did a whole lot of stuff. You never mentioned that. Why? Oh, I said, yeah, but you went, okay, we killed a bunch of Indians. Well, I was there too. And I was in uniform. I was the first Negro. What the hell just happened here? That's not path breaking <laughs> that, that's that's leading to your master for let me stop and, and Wait, I, no, no, I mean you know and let, let me apologize because you have made me zero time like it's like when you know better there's like no turning back it's like, no, like, no, like the matrix you i don't took that pill now i can't right. i can't unsee these things i can't unthink these things so no so now i am you know and for those who haven't caught up to that or even you know imagined it it, it can be offensive to your to your psyche because change is, is supposed to be pain, a little bit painful, right? Right. So we don't want to sit in that pain to to go to the other side of it, and so it makes us it makes our world. I mean, for me, my world is very tiny as a result because I I'm even though I talk to millions of people every day, it's very hard to find this conversation where I'm like pen in hand, like oh let me go down. The rabbit hole here. I just I just interviewed uh Rachel Swarns. Um, yeah, that's the new book on the Georgia yeah. piece. Yeah, Thursday. And um her brother-in-law is JL Coven. Oh, do you mind mentioning the title? People saw it. Oh, but... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The 272. Yes, yes. 272. And her brother-in-law is has been in community with me because he is the baddest Donald Trump impersonator in the world, JL Coven. <laughs> Right, I didn't know. Wait, I didn't realize that was it. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, he's actually Haitian. People don't know that. Like, it's wow. a weird. That's why race is weird. So I actually work with his brother Henri at the New York Daily News, and she's married to Henri. So I'm like, so hey. so when we were in Chicago on uh, Foolishness Friday, he was like, "Look, I've been traveling with this book. <laughs> System love will kill me if I don't give it to you." So he gave it to me in Chicago. I started reading, and I was like, "Yo, Catholic Church." Y'all got some some splaining to do here, Georgetown. Hey, and you know you hear Georgetown, and but you don't understand the impact of two hundred seventy-two people that they sold into down down the river, so that they could pay, so they can build build more things and do more things and have more things. Uh, they treated these human beings like nothing, and these were the Christians among us, the people who love the Lord. Christians among them. Oh my God! See, even that. Even that you got me even thinking yeah, about who's I, us, who's we, they, no, them. We breathe air, we walk around and we eat food. But beyond that, culturally have nothing in common with them, except their, of course, way of knowing their religion is derivative of the Egyptians. So, I mean, other than that, other than we gave them the framework for European Christianity, also known as Catholicism. Uh, other than that, there's no need for, you know, I, I don't, you know. I'm not trying to work my way in. With all due respect to St. Benedict of Moore, and all, you know, just not trying to look for the black. So, so I'm having this conversation with Rachel, who still identifies as being a Catholic. And I was like, that's fine. You know, I went to Catholic school, you know, from from fifth grade on throughout high school. And I always, you know, could see the hypocrisy, but I could see that, you know, it's like we accept hypocrisy in our homes, even. Yes. You know, so like we're so yes. used to hypocrisy that it's like, OK, 
that's just that's just how it is. We just yeah. gonna, you know, let me just get this chemistry. And I know y'all, y'all are weird. I'm not calling you father because my Bible says call no man father. But where does Bible, about that? Where does Bible come from? So I'm just like I'm just going through all of that. What are you looking for? A book? Are you looking yeah, for? A book I, was, I was looking for the book on Afro. There's a new book on Afro Catholicism. It's very interesting because Catholicism, believe it or not, is more flexible in some ways for Africans because you know the whole idea of one God and then a lot of Saints. Uh, saints. Yeah. It's very consistent. And so this book actually reads it through New Orleans. But yeah, I mean, you, you call yourself a Catholic, but uh, if you don't call yourself a Catholic, I would say if you talk about African Catholicism, then I would say, oh, I don't know, Vodun, Santeria, uh, Cadomble, Macumba. That's not, hold on. They, they said St. Mary, they Saint, said St. Peter. They said, yeah, but they mean Shango. And they, okay, you scared? Don't be scared. Because these people pay, pray to little, have little medals around their neck, and they got the dog, got a medal, and here's St. Francis of Assisi with all people who are unhoused. You can't put Shango and Yemiya in there. Your, your ancestors did. They, they, when they made them Catholics, they said, "We'll take, we'll, we'll take uh, St. Barbara, no problem. We'll take St. Uh, Patrick, no problem, and we'll put Dambala underneath him, no problem." Don't be scared of yourself. So if you're talking about being that kind of Catholic, I can understand that. <laughs> but if you you talking about being a Catholic where God looked like your master. Well, God bless you. I pray for you. Yeah. So I and she and she even talked about. I mean, she's a whole scholar. You know, she talked about you know being a Catholic, and I was like, why? You know, no, no disrespect, and no, you know, I'm not like you know, like wagging my finger. But you know, she's like, Catholicism feels like home to me, and I'm like, we all need to find a place that feels like home. So like, that's fine. You know, that's good too, right? Like the United States feels like home. Right. Leave and realize what the hell just happened. Okay, so let's talk about that. <laughs> Coming back, are you are you thinking thinking about leaving? I could have stayed for another couple of months, but had to come back to work. I mean, that's what it comes down to. So I mean, you know, we we we, we our work is here, but it's also there. But we got people there. And again, shout out to those brilliant guides my Nubian fam, you know, who were there. Uh, shout out to um, to all of them who guided us through, to Muhammad, to Yosef, Yusef, uh, to all of them. And then on the last day we were there, we got a knock on my door and Baba Abdul, who was uh, on the bus with me, who was kind of like one of the sons of... Uh, King Farouk Carney, the, the elder tour guy that when we talked last week, we went to see him. Uh, he said, this is for you. I said, what is it now? He wouldn't let me. We're in the bookstore. We done bought out the bookstore. Shout out to all the bookstores, to Obelisk Bookstore, the owner. Uh, it's good to see that brother. Hadn't seen him in a few years. Of course, we haven't been there since COVID. Uh, Abudi's Bookstore uh, in Luxor. Went to both locations, sat and had uh, a drink, a drink meaning tea, with, uh, <laughs> with the grandson of the, of the owner. Uh, the first, the, the 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 founder of the bookstore back in the twenties. We just sitting there talking books, man, on a beautiful. I don't know what day of the week it was. Afternoon in in Luxor, talking books. It's a hell of a thing to be in a bookstore that looked like your house, because his bookstore looked like my house. So I'm sitting on the couch. I'm right at home. But at any rate, uh, knock on the door, and Abdul said, "It's for you." I said, "What?" Because I have been trying to buy him books everywhere we go. We done bought out everything. Freedom got all the books. By the way, if you didn't miss Freedom class in school this 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 fall, that reminds me, I got to send her that picture of her in the bookstore. She didn't she didn't kitted y'all out for the Nile Valley. 
but at any rate um so you wouldn't let me so finally when i got to the last place we went we the last museum we went to the, the, the day uh before we left was the nubian museum in aswan which is a brilliant i mean it's just a brilliantly curated museum not very big but every piece just exquisite that's where you see the the, the statues of the nubian archers the people from Taseti, where uh ta mary the beloved land ta means um means land mer or mary in metanetra means love but Taseti is the name they were known by in the nile valley that's that's the ta is um ties land and seti means the bow the land of the boat the nubian archers put your eye out from 300 yards <laughs> so anytime when ramses got in trouble the battle of kadesh and all that he calling on his divisions to come in trying to hold out the hittites yeah but here come Taseti, here come the land of the boat and you see that they got these little wooden soldiers about this high piece and they're lined up by about maybe a couple of dozen of them and so they have that in the nubian museum and they also have uh busts from the period of the the new uh the late period the nubian renaissance as they call it uh taharka and shabaka so you see the uh the, the nubians who came down to restore order in the Nile valley so we were over there and uh as i said uh, the brother who owns the the obelisk bookstore they don't they opened a branch over at the nubian museum in fact hot off the press if i can find it yeah look the Nubian, Nubian Museum in Aswan. This is the guide uh, book to them. He was telling me, man, we just got a new book on the Nubian Museum. I said, man, you know, I got to take all the books on. I was terrified. <laughs> By the way, tip, of course, for everybody who travels, who's book collector. Yoli in, uh, in, in Nubia wants to know how many books did you bring back? Oh, let me think. <laughs> let me think. Probably somewhere between 30 or 40 what maybe more i don't know because here's the thing look it's 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 hot as hell so i pack a bunch of t-shirts in fact i got this t-shirt when i was there it, it it's not it's meta nature but they, they, they sell the little tourist stuff i like this print anyway i was i, I always said i was gonna pick up a couple of these but anyway i get there i got pants i got shorts i got some sandals i got the fly nubia sneakers that you uh, sent me beautiful with newbie on the back, the Nike joints. You know, I said, okay, this is cool. And uh, and I got t-shirts and underwear, but not a lot of t-shirts. I can, I, I just wash the clothes, and keep going. Pack one small bag, put it in the larger carry-on bag. Uh, not the large carry-on, the longer, the larger bag. So I flew over there with my backpack, which has to be completely kitted out because I'm the tech guy. So if anything, no, no, I got an adapter for that. We don't have no, I got an adapter for that. No, 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 I got I got I got the flash drive. Just put it on this and put it on it, no problem. So that's my job. I'm very happy to do that. And my carry-on, which was just a little bag, and uh one piece of luggage. Why? I put all my clothes stuff in a little piece, put it in the big piece. Why? Because the big piece coming back full of books. <laughs> so <laughs> I only travel with one with two bags, but only come, I leave with one, come back with two. So I don't know, 30, 40 books, maybe I'm not sure. Wow. Because that wow. includes pamphlets and stuff like that. But um, but anyway, just like I said, I'll end that quick story. Because everywhere we went, when we were in the obelisk bookstore outside the unfinished obelisk of Hatshepsut, when we were at the other branch at the Nubian Museum, you talk about black people buying books. And I took pictures. In fact, Monday night, I'm gonna show a few of those pictures too. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit during office hours. All these black people in there. We bought so many books that we literally put the tour behind. 
the guys figured out by the second time that they just had to wait. I'm not talking about 30 minutes or 45 minutes, I'm talking about a couple of hours. In fact, the power went out at the unfinished obelisk. So I had to pick my books up. Uh, uh, Freeman had to get her books later. They had to bring the books to the hotel. And so we got the last day when we got to the Aswan Museum, uh, the brother was like, yeah, I'm so glad to see you. His, da his daughter got engaged. So I was very impressed. I don't know if I, uh, I don't know if I have his, I don't know. He sent me, I won't be able to find it. He gave me uh anyway, anyway. Yeah, his daughter got in. He was in Cairo, but they called him and said, you know, we was in town. So he said, I'll be back by Saturday. He got back to his other store. And we were out there talking. I said, hey, man, I owe you money. And he was like, I know. And we just started laughing. I said, because I couldn't even pay for the books. It, it broke the damn machine at the other place. But uh, so anyway, we, we're getting ready to go to the airport. I had to knock on the door. And it's my man, Abdul, Baba Abdul. And he said, I got something for you. I said, okay. He gave me a Galabia. Now, when you go to Kim, you know, everybody's wearing Galabia. Some of like farmer clothes. And uh, I, I brought a Galabia with me and I picked up one when I was at, uh, I don't know where we were, maybe the Temple of uh, Heru. No, no, it wasn't Temple of Heru. Uh, Temple of Isis, Temple of Aset on Philae Island. I wanted to get something from the Nubians, so I picked up one. But the one he gave me was um, the one they wear. Because you know, they sell some to the tourists, but if you don't know, you can't tell the difference. And he made sure I got one like he got. And I said, man, it's like, just like the one Baba Farouk had. He said, yeah, that's what I wanted to give to you. I said, man, I, I brought tears to my eyes. Of course, I had by then snuck the book that he had in his hand. I said, man, let me get that book. He said, no, 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 you can't tell, no, no, no. So anyway, I got around that by going to the owner and said, give me that book, man, I'm sticking. I said, here, hold this for a minute. He said, what, well, that's yours. You can't, no, you can't give it back to you. My mom will have a fit if you try to give me something back. Anyway, so it's all love. And those Nubians are part of our family. These are the newbies. So, um, so yeah, um, I thought today we would spend some time with with the Kimmy trip, but also in kind of a back to school rhythm. Um, you know, yesterday was Marcus Garvey's birthday, and uh, day before yesterday, Marcus Garvey's birthday, and we're in Black August, or as Lynn Morrow said, uh, I love Lynn. Lynn, <laughs> Lynn is amazing. Uh, she went with us, Doctor Morrow. Uh, Professor Morrow, uh, many years, uh, Professor at Sonoma in uh, in California, also a music director for the Oakland Symphony Chorus, a uh, lot of things, brilliant sister. And I think it was Lynn that said, and maybe somebody, I think it was Lynn that said, this is the blackest August ever. <laughs> so it's like, we, so it's black August. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that. Um, Marcus Garvey's book, and a lot of people have this now because you know, we've been talking about it. And you know, Paul Coates has taken over the printing of the new Marcus Garvey Library, which was edited by the great ancestor Tony Martin, Anthony Martin, the great Trinidadian Garvey scholar. And his little book, Marcus Garvey, A Message to the People, The Course of African Philosophy. This was Garvey coming together to engage in 1937, uh, three years before he made transition in creating a leadership training course for his the people who were in the unia because he knew he wasn't gonna be around forever and here are the first graduates of the uh school of african philosophy 1937 but in it hit the first the first chapter is called intelligence education universal knowledge and to your point prof he, uh, he said uh earlier about you know 
talking to people and not talking to people. He says, never write or speak on a subject you know nothing about. For there's always somebody who knows that particular subject to laugh at you or ask you embarrassing questions that might make others laugh at you. You can know about any subject under the sun by reading about it. If you cannot buy the book outright and own them, go to your public circulating library in your district or town so as to get the use of those books. You should do that so that you may refer to them for information. You should read at least four hours a day. The best time to read is in the evening after you've retired from your work and after you have rested and before sleeping hours. But do, do so before morning so that during your sleeping hours, what you have read may become subconscious. That is to say, planted in your memory. Never go to bed without doing some reading. That's just a couple of things Garvey says in there. But, you know, it's, it's very striking because we're now going back to school. And, you know, when I first started going overseas with students, like I said, it's 20 years ago. Even before that, when I went first time with the camp was 96. I think this was like trip number seven or eight. I always take books, but I take fewer and fewer books now. Um, because I know I'm going to get books and buy books. And, you know, that whole international flights and weight is a serious thing. Um, but I always take one or two books that I want to spend some time with. Uh, this time I took uh, my man Derek White's book on the Institute of the Black World, which I have read a couple of times, The Challenge of Blackness, the Institute of the Black World and Political Activism in the 1970s. Um, of course, uh, Vincent Harding and Bill Strickland. Uh, I took this because I wanted to reread it and I also took because, you know, what we're building here can feed think tanks, can feed structures, but also can be one and you know i'll talk about that in a minute in terms of just what i think we all discovered those of us who are in this nubia space and on the narrative platform and who also participate uh in the weekly in class what we really discovered with a convenient because it was what, 220 people roughly give or take a couple um, who we traveled with that's the largest group largest single group I'm aware of since a thousand African people went to the Nile Valley in 1987, the lecture that Larry Crow gave for us the second night we were in the valley when we were in Cairo. And you all can go back and see the conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago on that. But at any rate, with that many people, you know, many of them were not in Nubia, not in narrative, and some of them hadn't seen in class although i i don't know that there were too many who hadn't but you know with that critical mass of people who have but who had never seen each other in person it really reinforced what we've been doing it was that dimension it was a similar feeling to when we were in hershey when you brought us to hershey uh, when we were with healthy wealthy and wise or when we were at the blurred kind except we were halfway around the world on the African continent, deeply immersed in uh, the foundational human society for everything that has come since in many ways, not always, but many ways. A society that is on the African continent that was indigenous to the African continent that was wholly created, shaped by people on the African continent, African people. It was transformative. So, and, and it occurred to me that this was the first time back 
since COVID started and what had changed between COVID and now was this. So what we all got to experience is another pillar of the importance of this space. Yeah. I just, I didn't consider that, you know, like, cause you guys have been doing this trip for what, many couple years. Of, yeah, first time I took the took students to Kemet was uh 2007, I think. No, yeah, 2007, then 2000, no, 2008, 2008, the year after Ace of Pain. That's okay. when I decided we would go. So, 15, 15 plus yeah. years you've been doing this. Yeah, this is the largest group of people you've taken, it was 200 plus people. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is that the the tone, the tenor, the 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 community, even though most people hadn't seen each other because you know, we're we're in this box. Uh, every week, um, twice a week, three times a week, four times a week, depending <laughs> on what you're taking, you know, if you're, if you're taking yoga or, you know, Maroon's Medicine Chest, you're doing the, the the mental health series, or if you're, you know, taking Meta Nature with Dr. Beatty or, you know, uh, in, you know, maybe Tasha's coming through with a language class. Um, you know, we are literally in community office hours on Monday, yeah, probably every day, right? Uh, so what was that? What was it seeing people that you'd only seen popping in for a question on a Monday? It was, it was, it was, you know, as we talked about, there were going to be two, two complementary energies at play. One was going to be the deep immersion in the place. You can't study a place in two weeks, but you can immerse in it. So really the the, the real resonant power of what we did is now going to play out as people are going through their photographs, as people are reading and studying and said, no, wait, I stood in Abitus. Wait, no, wait, I was there in the White Chapel in the Middle King. And so as they're reading, it's just going to open that up. But the second stream, which reinforces that first one, were the conversations. So I'm sitting there, you know, Lisa, um, 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 Lisa Gaines, Clarence Gaines, his son, her nephew, the Gaines family, uh, Lisa and her and her brother Clarence, the children of Clarence Big House Gaines, arguably along with John McClendon, the two most important figures in the history of HBCU basketball and two of the most important figures in the history of basketball period. That they say John McClendon invented the fast break. He actually studied with the guy at Kansas who, uh, you know, Naismith. But at any rate, Clarence Big House Gaines, a legend. Any of y'all know anything about the CIAA? His children were there with his grandson. What? And oh yeah, yeah, because they're newbie. They ain't newbie. They probably came. I didn't know, I didn't know. Know. I'm smiling because you know Stephen A. Smith went and played under uh, Clarence Big House Gaines. Um, How about that? And see, here's what I'm saying. Clarence sent me this book. His son sent me there. They call me Big House, Clarence E. Gaines. And of course, because we, we were in a in a in a in a meeting. You know, we did meetings every other week before we went with everybody who's going. And we were talking, and Clarence said, hey, man, I got to send you something. Give me your address. I sent his address, and he, his father signed this copy. <laughs> so I was like, Clarence, you can't say He said, brother, it's an honor. But Clarence was there. I never, Clarence the Third. I never seen Clarence the Third with my eyes until we are on a plane. And it was transformative. But here's the, here, here's the thing. That, 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 that's enough in itself. But we're sitting there. With Lisa, his sister, she's sitting there. We at dinner or something, and she's sitting there. I'm sitting there, and I don't know whether it wasn't Kathy. It was one of our young people. Oh, was was it Angie? I mean, yeah, it might have been Angie. So 
we were talking Angie Porter, Angie Carter, who we had two Angies. Yeah, our support team was was dynamite. In fact, I got a picture of them. This is these are the people. These this is our support team. <laughs> so you see everybody there. These this is the day we gave out the certificates on papyrus with the metanetia on it. So you see Mama Labisi and Baba Larry, Angie Carter. There's Jasmine Watkins, Doctor Jasmine Watkins. I'm gonna embarrass her now. Uh, Jasmine, that's that, that's Belikia's niece. Uh, she went with us. This this is the team that kept everybody together on the buses, supporting the guys. That's Jasmine there. Jasmine was, I don't know, seven or eight years old. We went to Detroit for the African World History Project Symposium. This is back when everybody in working in the project was still on top of the earth. Most of those people are ancestors now. And it's the time from Jacob Carruthers, Leon Harris, Asa Hilliard. We were all there. And we were the youngsters, myself, uh, Mario, uh, Valithia, Adesai Jamu. We were the four youngsters. And um, wait a minute. Let me think. Am I missing somebody? Um, Ronde Miller, the fifth. So we had assignments. And that's how our chapters, me, Mario, and Valithia's chapters in, in Adesai ended up in the African World History Project. But anyway, 1996, Obenga, everybody's there. So we go to spend a night at Valithia's sister's house. Valithia's sister's daughter, I'm asleep. And you know, I carry my writing tools, my erasers, my pencils and pen, usually just three. I got an eraser, a pencil, and a mechanical pencil and a pen. And I, you know, I usually write with 0 0.03, real small. And I'm even writing in the margins, writing on the newspaper. So I just go to sleep. I wake up next morning. Cause you know, we done stuffed into this house in Detroit, little house in Detroit. So we sleep in there, we get in where you fit in, couches, floors, whatever. I wake up next morning, I can't find my pencil. Now I got a little lightweight OCD when it comes to writing instruments, books. I mean, I don't I know where I put it. Can't find a place. I don't know how this happened. Oh, it was Lethia who suspected or her sister? I was reading. Come to find out, my pencil had been pilfered. And the culprit was Jasmine. <laughs> Jasmine saw the pencil, saw me writing with the pencil, and was fascinated with the pencil. It was the look, the technology, the feel when she got that pencil. Now, they's getting ready to upbraid this child. She a little girl. I said, no, nah, leave her alone. She can have that pencil. No, we can't reward bad behavior. Oh, no, we got to get her pencil. Now. I want to give her the pencil. I'm, I'm glad she wants the pencil. You, you could have it. Anyway, many years later, Jasmine came. This is after she got a degree. Uh, she's a mathematician by training, then teacher education, taught elementary school, I think it was. She came to Howard to get her doctorate in education. This little girl was now grown. We standing on the corner and I talked to the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences and got her a teaching assistantship as our TA for the freshman seminar course. Very important. You know, they've since taken the freshman seminar course for me. And uh, I'm kind of glad in the sense it was a whole lot of work, but I'm just sad for the students because, uh, you know, our framing of freshman seminar was imagined by the great James Donaldson, the great dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, now ancestor. And he was absolutely adamant, this mathematician, this uh, man from Jim Crow, Jim and Jane Crow, Florida, who went to Lincoln University for undergrad, who became a PhD in mathematics at the age of 25 at the University of Illinois, who always was deeply grounded in his culture, who was part of the delegation from the United States that went to Festac in 1977, a true African from Florida, James Donaldson. When he brought me in and asked me to lead the reimagining of the freshman seminar 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago now, he said, 
you know, these students have to have a grounding in who they are. And uh, we busted our tail for many years. I'm very proud of the work we did. Uh, not doing it anymore, but you know, never underestimate the power of a confused Negro. But the point is that Jasmine, we got her a job as the lead teaching assistant in freshman seminar because the, the previous lead teach, uh, teacher was had graduated. Um, and so that day we're standing on the corner, me, Mario, Valithia, Jasmine. I said, Jazz, she said, I got something for you. And I went in my pocket and I gave her my mechanical pencil. <laughs> I said, after all these years, <laughs> I think, you know, it's been 20 some years, uh, you, 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 you should have this pencil. And so, you know, we laughed about it. Anyway, that's Jasmine. That's Dr. Jasmine Watkins there, the pencil thief. <laughs> but she, <laughs> she's now her own, got her own PhD. She's out there teaching. Uh, that's Angela Carter, who that's the first time those two have met. Miss Carter is my current teaching assistant. She was the lead TA for many years in uh, freshman seminar today in the purge. She got caught up, but I said, yeah, I'm not going to do that to this child. She's going to finish. She's writing her PhD now. She's writing a dissertation on uh, Philadelphia International Records. She's doing cultural work. And, and Deborah Hurd, who is an expert in Nubia, like the study of Nubia, archaeological digs and everything. Brilliant sister. Uh, of course, there is Mario, Valethia, myself, Angie Porter, as y'all know. And uh, here is Stephanie Tisdale. Stephanie went with me when we went to South Africa the first time. This is her third time to Egypt. She went the first two times as a teenager with a group out of Philly called the Dessert Club. Some of y'all may have heard of the Dessert Club. This is her third time. And my man, Kahende, Baba Kahende here, who, uh, Kahende Graham, uh, who is finishing up his graduate work at Temple University as well. This was our support team. So, like I said, a lot of folks hadn't seen each other since COVID. And the thing that really really jailed like i said angie was sitting there at dinner i think it was and i said lisa what y'all talking about and she started she was talking about family history i said did they know who your father is and she said no i said you should tell them and I, watching their eyes get big and she told the story of clarence big house games see you can't do you can do that on a screen but to you in person you could be, I mean, that was the second part. The first part was being in the place, seeing all the things, doing that bit of study, marking things, taking photographs. Mama Olabisi, Olabisi, photographing the whole wall of the pyramid text because she's going to come back and translate it because she has she has taken every class, every session of the class Mario has taught and it's gone back. I saw her study notes when I was in Dayton, when I was over at their house, when we went out to the Martin Delaney's uh, grave. And so she I said, you taking these pictures because she, yeah, she, I'm taking these pictures because I'm going to go back and translate. So that's that's one side. The other side is the informal conversation. The conversation like, you know, we were talking and one brother from Philly, we were having a conversation about development and what institution building looks like. And, you know, he is heavily into finance, heavy into development, institution building. And he was talking about how he said, you know, remember when we were when we read Blake? And I was like, yeah. He said it was something. He's, he tied Blake to souls of black folk, to miseducation of the Negro, to this contemporary work of imagining how to build out black spaces, get creative financing, work with government. See, that was an informal conversation while we were picking up the photographs that I just showed you, you know, and we standing there in the hall getting ready to, but that can't be done on in the boxes in the same way. And that happened so many times that we can't imagine. So 
So I mentioned that because it is when we have a feel for each other through physical contact that we're able to build differently. But that those conversations wouldn't have been possible except for the last three years. We would have been in Kemet. No COVID, we'd have been in Kemet in August 2020, 2021, 2022. But COVID, and I talked about this in one of the presentations that, 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 that I led, the catalyst of this space in class, in narrative, Nubia, then returning to see in between what has been born. We jailbroke it. It is it is completely jailbroken. You know, two days after Garvey's birthday, it reminded me I pulled this off my shelf of what happens when you put people in conversation in real time. There's a wonderful little book on Garvey called Garvey, Africa, Europe, the Americas. Rupert Lewis and Maureen Warner Lewis edited this. Uh, my friend, my friend Casahun uh, Chikoli at um, Africa World Press uh, published this back in 1980, no, 1994. But the reason I bring it up is because they had a conference in 1973 at the University of West Indies on uh, it was the first international convening of Marcus Garvey scholars. But these are not just these were not just scholars. They were scholars who were activists. They were scholars who were working. Uh, Prime Minister Manley opened the conference. Uh, people like Emery Tolbert, the recent ancestor, uh, Tony Martin, who was an ancestor now, Rupert Lewis, uh, the great EU Usain Udon, uh, an ancestor. Amy Jakes Garvey was there. Amy Jakes Garvey was there. She lived another six months. And so they write about, in fact, in the uh, preface here to the uh, to the piece, what uh, Rupert Lewis and Maureen Warner Lewis say, and I'll just I'll just quote it, it says, the seminar was in large measure a tribute not only to Marcus Garvey, but also to Amy Jakes Garvey's own work alongside him during his lifetime and after his death in 1940. In this post-1940 period, she played an important role as an information co-coordinator and resource person on the movement in which she was such an active participant. No scholar who presented a paper at the seminar was not indebted to her for help. All had lengthy correspondence with her. Most had visited and interviewed her. But little did we know that the seminar was to be the last major public appearance of Garvey's second wife, who was to live only six months longer. Mm -hmm. However, at the opening of the seminar in January of 1973, she gave an impassioned speech on the life and work of her husband when you are physically with each other like a book like this can be put together today there's been a lot of work on marcus garvey a lot of brilliant work a lot of work by people who wouldn't throw rice at a wedding wouldn't throw a rock in a ghost town but they got all the words about what marcus garvey did or didn't do uh i'll never forget uh robert uh, no not robert hahn his first stephen hahn wrote a book that won all the prizes a nation under our feet and he talks about going into Philadelphia to the uh, to the museum there in downtown Philly, the African-American Museum. And he said he went because he heard there was a, a Universal Negro Improvement Association event. He's an academic, quite academic. Race doesn't matter. But he thought that it was a symposium on the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. He's an academic. It, the topic is Garvey's organization. He said, I'm, I'm going to learn something about Garvey. He walked in the room and found out it was a meeting of the UNIA. He said, oh, they still exist? And see, if he had known to talk to Redmond Ballas and them boys or Thomas Harvey's people up there in Broad Street where the, where the UNIA Liberty Hall is, instead of becoming an expert on Garvey, maybe go talk to some Garveyites because everybody know Black and Philly where the Garvey Hall is, Liberty Hall is. 
But this is where we face now. You got academics writing about something and many things they ain't got no contact with, no protocol. Had a long conversation with Kathy Adams about that. Kat, in fact, <laughs> uh, Kathy Adams in narrative, Nubia here all the time. Kathy at Claflin brought her student. Uh, I have to give credit to uh, Mahaya, uh, Miss Dixon, who was there, you know, Claflin undergrad. Uh, she was saying that she just came, she didn't even come back to the United States. She took a bunch of students to Ghana and then went to Egypt. And so we, we by the time we got to Cairo, she was already there. But Kat was like, I was at the University of Ghana and I learned so much from people who, you know, are academics, but I also understand there are protocols. A lot of people writing about stuff have no feel for the thing they're writing about. Oh, but they get all the awards. And so it means something to be in person. It does mean something to connect. So uh, I just mentioned that. Um, and then to reflect, two weeks went by like this. Now we're all back and we get to have reflection. And school started. School started while we were in the air. We got on the plane Monday and school started at the Howard Law School on Monday. I, we landed Tuesday morning at John Foster Dulles and I had class the next day at the law school. So, and a lot of K-12 folks are already going back to school you know, so so we just keep moving. But the thing that had been missing for me in August 2020, 2021, and 2022 was I didn't get that regrounding because I would I would normally carry that regrounding and Kemet into the school year because it is a it, it is a power wash of the social structure foolishness, which is where we started a few minutes ago. It made me pull off the shelf uh, the great Joyce Ladner's book. The Death of White Sociology. And in this, which has re also been reprinted by Black Classic Press, if you want a copy, the great essay in here by Edward Franklin Frazier, The Failure of the Negro Intellectual. And this is what Franklin Frazier says about this question of race that we opened a minute ago in talking about. He said, it may seem strange if I tell you the question of integration and assimilation of the American Negro was not being, has not been considered or raised by American Negroes, but by African intellectuals. Only recently at a luncheon in Washington, an African intellectual spoke on the subject and afterward asked me to write an article on the subject. But the contrast between the attitude uh, and orientation of American Negro intellectuals and African intellectuals was revealed most sharply at the Congresses of Negro Writers held in Paris in 1956 and Rome in 1959. This is like where, um, uh, in Paris, 56, that's where James Baldwin saw Sheikh Anta Job talking about the African origin of civilization or society and also ancient Egypt. And Baldwin sat there and said, yeah, I wasn't very in interested in what he had to say. Sure, you would have to be much more interested in, you know, talking about racism. I understand. This is what Frazier says. He says, at these congresses, the African and I might add the West Indian intellectuals, the Caribbean intellectuals, were deeply concerned with the question of human culture and personality and the impact of Western civilization on the traditional culture of Negro peoples. It was to be expected that African intellectuals would be concerned with such questions. By the way, in a minute when we talk about Kemet, because what I want to do is go very quickly through some of the sites and what they kind of triggered in my mind so that we can prep to think about why this is important. But that is very much in the vein of what Frazier is talking about. When we go to these places in Kemet, we're thinking about the nature of human beingness in the world. We're not thinking about race. We're not thinking about folding chairs or AP courses. We're not thinking about Donald Trump or Moms for Liberty. We're thinking about how do we think about the nature of reality? 
That's a different conversation. Finally, Frazier says this. While they're talking about, uh, what does he say, uh, questions of human culture and personality and so forth, this is what Frazier writes finally. He says, but the amazing thing was that American Negro intellectuals who were imbued with an integrationist point of view were not only unconcerned with these questions, but seemingly were unconscious of the implications of the important questions of the relations of culture and personality and human destiny. Why? Because what were the American Negroes talking about? Race. So, check on the joke. What you talking about? I'm talking about how we think about using resources to improve the lives of people and why we would even make a certain choice to use a certain resource this way. What you thinking about? I'm thinking about how we can, you know, this misogynoir. I'm thinking about how we had to fight to get a recognized. Okay, we're going to be over here talking about, like, the big issues. And you're welcome to come, but if you're going to keep talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, and, okay, that's fine. And then what's wrong? That's the American Negro, you know. I mean, these white people got their heads off. They're smart, but they just seem to pour all that into, you know, I am not your Negro. Okay, we know. In fact, what? Anyway, in fact, get them to write about race because we don't really write. It's difficult because that's why we had to have these conveniences. Anyway, it's why we have to pause after we do things like what we just did. Here we have in, in narrative, especially, we have a great archive, narrative and Nubia, one that swells, really, with the reliability of the rhythms of sunrise and sunset. In other words, we're like a metronome. We're going to be here five, six, seven days a week. You can count on it. The archive swells. We don't have to talk about Black August today because we've done it several times before. We don't have to talk about Marcus Garvey today. We've done it several times before. We talked about it during the Olympics when a young sister from Costa Rica was there. We All that's in the archive. It's there to be sat with. Our, our sister April was there, first-rate academic. She's, she's back in class now. You know, and the wheels were turning. She's constantly saying, how do I translate this into teaching and learning? How do I do this? So th that space is there. We have the archive here. Now, the challenge we have is to imagine ourselves in time and space and act. Because whiteness is at the center of U.S. identity. You know, listening to, to, to Mike's podcast, you know, this whole grappling with the question of race, it's very difficult to displace it because often what we do what we are always in the danger of doing, all of us, myself included, is reinforcing whiteness by continuing to critique it. When you walk away from it, it gets nervous. That's why they all mad right now. And the responses to threats, real and imagined, to the centrality of whiteness grow. You know what happens? Whiteness calls itself. There's a virtual clavern being born. Anytime you're attacking jurors in Georgia, grand jurors, you got a virtual clavern. There's a virtual clavern. In other words, I'm not a member of the Klan, but thanks to technology, I can pretend to be. Let me get the telephone number. Let me get a picture of somebody's car. Let me get an address. Let me dox them. What's going on? Why are you doing that? Because I just got this feeling and that I'm feeling threatened. So you're going to put somebody's material life in danger because you feel threatened about a, a fake identity? Yeah. The curriculum wars, the library wars, all these things, the, the, the funded court challenges. You got some billionaires who uh, will say, you know, I'm not losing anything materially, but in order for me to continue to, with my foolishness, I think I need some politicians I own. And so, so I need those people in power. So I'm going to gen up a voter base to go vote for them. And while I, while they're suppressing the vote and doing all this other stuff, and, and, and it's all going to be congealed around whiteness at the center of U.S. identity.
Now it's interesting. I don't know if I might have put it up. This is uh, if this is the page. Let me see. This is uh, Financial Times from Thursday. Yes, this is it. It's an article in Thursday's Financial Times. U.S. subsidies generate two hundred and twenty billion dollars clean tech boom. A year ago, President Joe Biden launched a new era of U.S. industrial policy, signing into law the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act, offering more than four hundred billion in tax credits, loans, and subsidies all designed to spark development of a domestic clean tech and semiconductor supply chain. So far, they've given out about $224 billion of that money to states and localities for factories and new jobs being grown, 100,000 jobs. Watch this, though. The FT, Financial Times, found that more than 80% of clean tech and semiconductor investments announced in the past year are heading to Republican districts despite no vote from congressional Republicans for the IRA and only lukewarm support for the CHIPS Act. Why do I mention that? You know, the feckless ghoul Ron Johnson in, in, in Wisconsin. Marshall Blackburn in Tennessee. All these racists, you know, uh, Foghorn Leghorn, John Kennedy in Louisiana. As these plants open and these jobs go to Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, they stand up next to Biden and them or they send out a flyer to their thoroughly ignorant electorate and take credit for stuff they fought against. Now, why am I bringing that up? Racism is not, racism helping them get elected, but they're not only not being harmed, they're benefiting from policies from people who are at least trying to set racism aside enough to help everybody. They're going to get helped anyway, but to get back to office, they need to play the race card. Now, that's important to understand. Whiteness is at the center of U.S. identity. Why would you vote against something that you're going to benefit from? Because I know I'm going to benefit from it anyway. And if I call out the race card, the race is going to vote for me and I'll be there. This is the absurdity of race. Now, how do we combat that? Well, the Negro elite is only of marginal help, really of no threat at all. Because again, watching this conversation on YouTube, that uh, Professor Gates was uh, led up at Harvard, uh, at Har well, it was, uh, it was the Maynard Center at Harvard, the Robert Hutchins Center at, I started to say Robert Maynard, that's the journalist, the black man. The Hutchins Center at Harvard sponsored it. And, you know, it's big money, big money donors coming in. And the objective is full integration into the criminal enterprise called the United States of America. Charlene Hunter Galt had something to say, you know, she said, I want to correct Professor Gates on one thing because he introduced her and she moderated the panel. She said, you know, I did not integrate the University of Georgia. I desegregated it. We're still working on integrating it. And everybody laughed. I said, well, that's true. But uh, I would much rather see a lot more money go to the Atlanta University Center. And, uh, you know, let's, you know, now that the laws have been changed, W.E.B. Du Bois tried to tell y'all what was going to happen once desegregation took place. Your institutions would take an L. Your children might become alienated. Ironically, John McWhorter made that point. He said after 1954 and Brown on the panel, he said one of the unintended consequences was people thought that being in a classroom with all black people, all black students and a black teacher was somehow inferior. And I thought to myself, well, you're right about that, John. And you should say that more often since you're at Mega Everest and, you know, you've made a commitment. I'm sorry, Larry, he's not with you. He's at Columbia. My point is all these Negroes, they are very little help. Why they trying to get into the Ivy League schools? Henry Louis Gates made that point. So the threat to affirmative action for them is the threat 
that they might not get into those schools where their master has the bastion at Princeton and Harvard and Yale and Brown, the University of Chicago and Stanford and Yale. I mean, but the masses of our people continue to suffer. They got to pick up a chair and hit somebody. <laughs> because they're not going to those schools and they're not aspiring. Well, they shouldn't be aspiring to those schools as the end all and be all. The Negro elite is not a threat. Not really. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is on their mind. And increasingly, unfortunately, for a lot of our historically black colleges and universities, some of that leadership is also obsessed, which is why I say HBCUs, some of some of the attitude at some people at HBCUs is perhaps they should be DEIUs. You know, let's get into this thing. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be black folk at all valences of the social structure we're in, but if you're going to be that person, be that person, that's so you can get two more Negroes and y'all can go up on the vineyard and drink cocktails and talk about y'all made it and then go to the rest of the great unwashed and say, be like me. No, do it so that you can bust it out from the inside because then there's the rest of us and there's the blending issue. There is no we. I think about uh, Eugene Robinson's book disintegration where he talks about these four categories of black america those who have immigrated from other places uh the black super elite the vernon jordans the skip gates and them of the world you know the great vast majority of african people who are struggling to make it from day to day deeper down in the class structure you know all those things you know he talks about those things and when we think about the rest of us look it costs money to go to kemet you know people scraped some people could write the check many people can't as one sister said from uh from houston she said, you know, it's going to be rice for me, beans and rice for the next few, you know, however long, months or whatever. But I scrimped to save and I'm here and I'm glad I did. And it was transformative. I'm just saying all that to say that even in that conversation, had a conversation with several people who were like, we'd like to subsidize some young people coming over here, over here, put some money together. And these are people who know how to raise money, who put money together. And it's a beautiful thing because everybody, particularly children, should go to the Nile Valley once in their life to see it. I absolutely am a firm believer in that. And there are two forces at work in this capitalist society. Because one of the things Professor Gates brought up the other day in this, in this talk about affirmative action and threat to black people, the black elite, was that, you know, Du Bois talked about a talented 10th. But now, uh, about 22%, uh, the, what do you say? Those making $75,000 or more is up to a fifth of the black population. And he said, you know, so we've gone from a talented 10th to a talented 22%. Then they all started laughing. That's what the hell are you talking about, man? But I understand what you're talking about. I ain't mad at you, bro. You do you. What are we doing? We're pouring clean glasses of water. And guess what? We're pouring them in a way where we can do two things. Number one, because you got the billionaire class, the Mercers and the, uh, and the Blooms, who are going to fund these kind of hillbilly hordes to do what they do, Moms for Liberty and Sarah Fisher and them, you know, challenging affirmative action. And then you've got us. So while you're asking for money from the billionaires, we got the we got the numbers. That's the second, that's the other category. We got a bunch of people. And if everybody do a little, nobody's doing have to do a lot. So we got a platform now, we got a little subscription base. Uh, so you can begin to build the resources and, and be able to put things together to help free us and give us an archive and give us a place to connect. So that when we do see each other physically, we can pull this thing together. And when we travel like we did, just came back, that just becomes explosive. And now we can take it to the next level. And we're in this space where if you got access to internet access, you got on your phone or tablet, or whatever, you can watch this, be in this constantly, week after week after week after week. Why? Because the strength we have is in our numbers. Always has been, always will be. That's true of African people. That's true of people, period. And that's what those who are 
dedicated in keeping an unequal system unequal are terrified of. That's why they're trying to suppress the vote, change the laws in Texas and North Carolina. That's why they're trying to want, purge people from the voting rolls in Georgia. Why? Because they know if you get a critical mass of people, it don't matter how much money they have. That money will be neutralized. So the rest of us have to do that. That was Du Bois's challenge. Du Bois wasn't talking about integrating into power from the top down. Come on, Skip. You know better than that, brother. I ain't mad at you. Again, I ain't got no beef with Skip Gates because we're doing something different. You were doing something, and you should keep doing you because, you know, people who are attracted to that will be attracted to it. But I know that the vast majority of our people don't want nothing to do with that. Even if they say they do, in their heart of hearts, they want to make sure that everybody has something and has a foundation. And Du Bois was like, you got to speak to the world. You got to speak our truth to the world. Why? Because African people have something to say that will help our common humanity. And that's why we were in Kemet. That's the difficult challenge of movement and memory. And that is jailbreaking the black university without regard to class. Harvard, fine. Fine. That's beautiful. But guess what? Here, you will get quality that exceeds that. Why? Because it's going to be every bit and more what you would get there in any classroom conversation you would have. And, well, it ain't going to cost you 60, 70, 80 stacks a year. In fact, all it's going to cost you is a little bit of time and some attention, which is a fight in itself. So, so here we are. Here we are. We arrive at the cusp of the school year. And as I said, this is the blessing because, you know, for a lot of us, our calendar year is the year. There is no off summer. So in May, if y'all remember, you know, in, in a kind of a, a, a whirlwind, in May, we were at the New York African Burial Ground talking about the power of black institutions. When black folk lay down in front of bulldozers, when people like Gus Savage and John Henry Clark, uh, Gus Savage in the United States Congress, John Clark coming in as a consultant, talk about the history of blacks in New York, the great Howard Dodson at the Dodson coming from the Schomburg Center, uh, Queen, uh, Queen Mother Melvin Franklin from the First World Alliance and all the community activists out there, Lennon and Rosalind Jeffries, you name it, the New York African Burial Ground folk, were there and they said we're going to take these bones to pace university and it was like hell no black hands on these bones and so my man michael blakey was at howard at the time they said well y'all got y'all what school you got that's going to be able to study at howard and howard took the lead that's what black people expect of black institutions so when we were at the new york african burial ground in may we talked about that my man jimmy cleckley the lead ranger there on the site not only that site several other sites in the new york area we talked about what it means to create black spaces for the restoration of the movement of uh, the movement and memory, the restoration, so we can get the momentum of memory going. That's why we went to the burial ground. Then, you know, we were in Philly for the Malcolm X Symposium, sitting outside of Independence Hall that same month, deepening our understanding of independent assessments of social structure. I just bought a book on the children of the daughters of the American Revolution. It's a history of them. I, I, don't ask me where I got it from, but you know. Just know that I got it. Anyway, the whole idea that these people build institutions that they keep going. So when we're in Philadelphia, they're sitting, out, sitting outside of Independence Hall. We talked about social structure myth-making and how you attack it. You've got to attack the myth-making. That's why they're against all these curriculum stuff. Uh, that's why they're fighting against the AP class. Shout out to the teachers in Arkansas, uh, the uh, serial press secretary liar, uh, now governor of Massachusetts, uh, Massachusetts, of Arkansas, because they ain't had no sense to get Brother Jones in as governor. Uh, Sarah Hook B. Sanders uh, tried to stop AP, uh, African-American studies from being taught, including at Little Rock Central. 
I talked to a couple of the teachers who were there the last couple of weeks, and uh, they were able to beat that back. So they will be teaching the AP class, but they're fighting because they understand their stories are myth making, and any any attempt to study is a problem. But we had that conversation a month ago. We fight to make sure students have access to these classes, but this is where you don't have to fight. You're in the space. You're in the black space. And so we talked about that when we were in Philly through the lens of Independence Hall. And then we ended the month in Ohio at Martin Delaney's grave. We sat there at the uh, at the African American Museum at Wilberforce. You know, Larry Crow came. We said to reinforce the fact that we are connected through time and space. That people like Martin Delaney and Catherine Delaney and Charles Young understood that our blackness, we are from wherever we are born, but we are also with each other. So we recover those exemplars of the declaration of that fact. We are international. We are an international people. We didn't start out that way. Enslavement pulled us in. But once enslavement pulled us in and tried to put that label black on us or Negro on us or that other N-word, we then took that label and projected back out through that label to the connections. And now we're past using race as the prompt for being together. When we sit in the Nile Valley, we are considering the larger issues of being in the world. But what got us to the Nile Valley was the intellectual warfare. And then, of course, in June, when we sitting at the White House in the backyard, and Mama Opal Lee said, make yourself a committee of one to change mm -hmm. somebody's mind. That's the first thing that came out of her mind after, hello, young people. The vice president walked into the podium. He said, make yourself a committee of one to change somebody's mind. We're more than a committee of one now, more than a committee of two, President, you and me now. We are a committee of swelling numbers. When I tell you, people say, oh, I'm going to join Nubia. They're in the Nile Valley. I'm going to join Nubia. Other people I never miss. Other people sharing with each other, exchanging. Oh, you're so-and-so. Oh, you're so-and-so. Oh, here's Craig Brittingham over there. He said, I never saw you in person. Craig, how you feel? Oh, man, you post all the time. And people seeing each other. We're more than a committee of one now. Our numbers can't be quantified now. Because if I had a nickel, a nickel, if I had a penny, for every conversation I had over the last two weeks with people who say, I watch, I got my auntie to watch, my grandmother's over here. One sister took the obituary of her friend, her, uh, I think it was her aunt, into the Great Pyramid because she said, we were supposed to make this trip together. Hmm. And they made transition. So I'm taking this, I'm taking this obituary into the Great Chamber, the Great Pyramid. You can't quantify that. Hmm. We got, I mean, it was, it was un- Believable, and then of course, Miss Opalie said we're the most powerful country in the whole United States. <laughs> and I'm saying she misspoke. Yeah, go read Amiri Baraka's essay, "Black as a Country," in the collection called Home. He said in America, "Black is a country." So maybe she misspoke, but Baraka said "Black is a country," and Opalie said "Black is a country" on the back porch of the White House in June. We said, and she said, if we don't do something about it, about climate change, about this problem. We all going to hell in a handbasket, at which point the vice president backed up off the microphone like, well, she said it, I didn't. When you're 96, you can do that kind of thing. And then, of course, you know, later on that month, the reparations went to the reparations te testimony back and forth with these folk who talk about, you know, black nativism. No problem. No problem to Sandy Darity and, you know, Christian Mullen. No problem to the California Reparations Committee uh, chairwoman, uh, you know, Camila Moore. No problem. We can all have differences of opinion and debate. We should. It's healthy. But please understand this. The core of repair for African people is self-repair. It is self-repair. We will make the reparations demand, which is really a restitution demand. They talk about. They're not talking about rep repair. They, they, they gesture toward it. They talk about monuments and 
telling the history right. Yeah, but but at the core of that is restitution because telling the history right means you got to get rid of American history. It can't be redeemed. You know, I was listening to, uh, like I said, the Mike's podcast, and they were talking about Juan Guaido. I thought it was well done. The music, the brother playing Juan Guaido was brilliant. And they were talking about how he became a conquistador. Juan Guaido is prominently figured in the Afro AP African American Studies course. And all I could kept thinking was, when, when we were looking at the curriculum for the AP course, and then I heard him talking about Juan Guaido then, it says, well done, but why are we like caping for being a conquistador? <laughs> Again, what Richard Pryor said, that one joke he had said, don't you hate it when they interview Negroes they hire, and they say, what about us? We fought the Indians. Shut up, fool. You want them mad at us too? And why, <laughs> why are you caping for a criminal enterprise? The Spanish invaded the Western Hemisphere. Just because one of them was black, he was the first black. Mm -mm. We got a lot of work to do, but that's okay. Opal Lee said, make yourself a committee of one, change somebody's mind. We just keep pouring clean glasses of water. And so the first element of repair is self-repair. And then later on in the month of June, we were in Atlanta. We were there when Christine, when Willie Christine King Ferris made transition, the mm -hmm. short-term memory of our people. What happens when somebody like that makes transition and the whole world don't stop? Now, you know, sure, it's not Clarence Avon. It's not the Black Godfather. He's a figure who was kind of behind the scenes and it's important he made transition. It's not Charles Ogletree and the world should have stopped. Charles Ogletree, the great lawyer, and they paused uh, this thing that Gates and them did to recognize Tree, to recognize this great legal mind, this brilliant brother who convened uh, one of, if not the first, I think it was the first, after Derek Bell left Harvard because uh, Derek Bell was the dean and he left because they wouldn't hire a non-white woman on tenure on, to tenure on tenure track on the faculty. So he left. Charles Ogletree uh, pulled together some of his friends and they did the first seminar, what became eventually critical race theory. Very important. Ogletree made his transition. But come on now, those two, I expect us to have to do it. You should know. But Willie Christine King Ferris, Martin Luther King's sister, and the whole world didn't stop? The, the, the short-term memory of our people is even the, the, the even the short-term memory is is astonishing that's not even 100 years ago that was yesterday that was june 2023 speaking about a family that has done so much and the social structure they would talk about the kennedys and god knows tragedy is tragedy nobody's trying to do comparative suffering but your brother got killed your mama got killed in front of you your other brother drowned and when they found him in the pool no water in his lungs according to everybody who was there when they heard him talking to each other you know, you should rate the world stopping and the governance formation. It's inexcusable. You teach almost 50 years at Spelman College. You got all these students. You got all these people. You you, you and your sister-in-law stand up the Martin Luther King Center. This is a thing which goes on to this day, a living institution. But I bet you we all know about beef between this rapper and that rapper. We know which Instagram person is doing this and that. We know, it, yeah, but this hit the, you know, so we, we stop to consider what it means for us to have to piece together our institutional memory so that we can get that momentum of memory back. And in July, I went to LA for Black Lives Matter, the anniversary, to realize that organizing and mobilizing had, takes place in real time and space. Technology enables us to connect. When we were together in Kemet, it reinforced the difference between a virtual convening and a literal convening. And so I'm saying all that to say that what we're doing now is a means to an end. And we were out in LA with these folk, you know, Melina Abdullah, Dr. Abdullah and all her people and everybody was there, you know, Chuck D and Cornell and all them folks, you know. You see, this is what we're after. We're after connecting 
That's all we're doing. We are a committee of countless people and we are going to make a change. And that change will be in the real world, the tangible world you're talking about, Professor Hunter. And then, of course, we had Freedom Summer. You know, I was back and forth and, you know, with the, with the young people reading uh, State on Freedom and, and really thinking about what it means, the nature and purpose and process of black education. Very important. And so that allowed us to enter the Blackest Black August. Well, that in the summer school class, shout out to all of our students, the student athletes, freshman student athletes at Howard, the Karsh STEM scholars and the social sciences, humanities students, because those conversations that we had with them in the month of July allowed us to recenter the whole notion of the purpose and function of, of education. And I'll I, I tell you quite frankly, it's a, it's a big challenge because literacy is something that we are going to have to take very seriously and very differently now. And I'll talk more about that in a second, but I just want to go very quickly through this black as black August ever. Thanks, Dr. Morrow. Whoever said, I think it was Dr. Morrow. We remember what black August is. Black August, talking about freeing all our political prisoners. We marked it in 1970 and 71 with the death of Jonathan and, and uh, George Jackson. You know, if you go back and look at episode 76, episode 79, episodes 126, of our conversations in class. You'll see deeper dives into that. We talked about Blood of blood in My Eye and Soledad Brothers. We talked about the whole roster of black political prisoners. We should pause here to mention one who was recently gained, uh, got clemency in California, Rochelle Sinke McGee, 84 years old. He was released after 67 years in captivity. He was the only one who survived that uh, Marion County shootout when the San Quentin guards and the Marion County police killed Jonathan Jackson, killed the judge he had taken hostage, killed the two other brothers who happened to be in the courtroom because Senke was not with them. He was he was being he had been brought in to the courtroom that day to testify something. John Jackson, Jonathan Jackson, he wasn't with them. Jackson passed out guns. He took a gun while he said, I'm a political prisoner. I, I ain't supposed to be in jail like so many other people. I got locked up for the wrong reason. So, yeah, I helped. But he didn't kill nobody. They in fact, they had to uh, in the first trial, the jury would not uh, convict him of killing the judge. The police was shooting. The police shot. The police basically had target practice. So they tried uh, Sinke McGee and Angela Davis together because they say Angela Davis the one gave Jonathan the gun. Got the gun for Jonathan, rather. But then they separated the cases. Still a touchy subject in some ways. Angela Davis was acquitted. Russell Sinke McGee was convicted, spent 67 years in prison. And he was only liberated, granted release under this. There was a bill introduced in the California legislature, California Assembly Bill 960, that's now Penal Code Section 1172.2. That uh, says that if you have serious and advanced illness or are facing an end of life's uh, trajectory or for permanent in medical uh, incapacitation and you're no threat, they can let you out. You know what we call that? the effective death penalty. So you keep somebody in jail for a thousand years and then on the last day, how can you breathe? Let them out. Let me tell you something about this criminal enterprise called United States of America. It's a mixed bag. I had a conversation on uh, Wednesday night with my law students, first day of class. We went around, introductions, went through the syllabus, come in, and I just threw it out there because a couple of folk from Georgia. That's what y'all think of Fannie Willis in this charge because Fannie Wilson lined up lovely with this Rico. Somebody going to jail. Or not. But the point is, one of the young brothers, and I love I love my law students. I tell them all the time. 
because they're brilliant. They come from all over the country. And the conversations we have, I just don't get those conversations anywhere else. And they read because they got to read law school. You can't graduate from law school without reading. So, I mean, to me, that is the lifeblood. It's the anchor for me, particularly in a moment when chat GPT threatens to completely destroy the concept of the university, which is already on the verge of being destroyed. We'll come at that in a minute. But one young brother said, you know, I got a mixed feelings. Sure, this is nice. And and yeah, you know, and rule of law this, and sort. But, you know, fine. Willis likes that Rico. Let's talk about Young Thug. Yeah, she does. And the whole idea of, you know, yeah, I mean, law and order is important. And finally, Willis went to Howard. I think she went to law school at Emory, but her undergrad's from Howard. The whole idea that the rule of law is going to save us, that's a mistake. We should avail ourselves of the rule of law. We should use the law as a tool, as a weapon, as a defense, wherever we can. But the idea somehow that, that the law in any society except perhaps the Egyptian, which we'll come back to in a minute. It's like a Bible or article of faith. You know, you can't look at it that way, particularly in a criminal enterprise, settler colony state, like the United States of America, where the law is always conditional, almost always conditional, certainly when it comes to us. But um, Sinke McGee is out, age 84, after 67 years in jail for something he didn't do. Uh, I know he's got a GoFundMe out there. I think they've raised a little bit over, or nearly $50,000. No, they passed $50,000, actually. Um, parenthetically, I see that uh, the, the the cats in Birmingham, Reggie Ray, and uh, they got this community response recovery fund. Y'all probably have talked about that, prop. They're close to 300000 now. So you got Russell Sinke McGee trying to raise a little money, seeing the rest of his life with some dignity. And you got the cat with the chair in Montgomery and whoever else might get caught up in that. And they got 300 stacks in the bank off the GoFundMe. Short-term memory, long-term memory. Again, if we're not going to be a community of children, I'm not going to say a race. Thinking about Shamar Kakeda as he looks about the population of the Nile Valley. Not race, community. We're, gonna, we're not going to be a community of children. we got to revive the momentum of memory. This is Black August after all. If you can't raise no money in Black August, you see what I'm saying? But we have this entry so people now should look up Rochelle Sengay McGee and understand. So for many years in August going to Kemet is right of passage for us. Certainly one for me. A recentering. A recentering moment. A moment of remembering with other people many of whom hadn't been there before, some of whom had and we're on site every day. We do lecture every night. We have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Lunch usually when we're out somewhere on the site. And every once in a while, there's an hour or two in between. I'm going to go to the bookstores. I'm going to go around. You know, sometimes I just sit. And when it gets late at night, everybody quiet. Everybody gone. I might sneak down, sit by the Nile, and read. This time I brought Sinclair Drake, volume one of his important Black folk here and there. The brilliant St. Clair Drake. And also my man, Vincent Harding, the Institute of the Black World. Because I didn't want to think about race. I didn't have to. I wanted to sit in this foundational society built by our ancestors and remember what is important. And that's what I did the first year back since post-COVID. 
220 some travelers seeing and talking with each other those two elements being in the place and then being with each other in the place and seeing those transformative conversations riding back from abu symbol a four and a half hour drive and about midway through my man stacy puts on summer breeze makes me feel fine blowing through jasmine in my mind come on man you playing the ozzy brothers and we in the desert yo come on here playing some gil scott hearing 95 south talking about all of the places we've been coming in for the lecture so you know what put some more gil on peace go with you brother mm -mm. you're my doctor at martha's vineyard you're my lawyer yeah but somehow Come on, Skip. <laughs> you forgot about me. Gil said, now when I see you, all I can say is peace. It's the best we can do for you, bro, while you up there chopping that Cambridge cotton. Peace go with you, brother. I'm not mad at you, but playing that in the contest, you looking at a pyramid? Come on. If I had a penny for every time somebody walked off of that Giza plateau and mentioned the name Maurice White. That's why he wrote in the stone. <laughs> Do you understand? We're looking at the reason. And then Angela Carter, my, my TA, she reminded me because she, you know, she's writing about this music, Motown, particularly Philadelphia International. She knows that me. Anybody 28 years old know that much about the music? Come on, you got to roll. You on our team. You got to be part of this team with us. She said she named the album cover. Stacey said that was the cover where we were at Abu Simbel, the temple for uh, Ramses II and Nefertari and those four huge statues of Ramses. That's the cover of one of the Earth, Wind, and Fire albums. They tell you the comedic history, putting it right there. So that night, I made a quick adjustment on my slides, and I said, you know, it is that Pharaoh, 67 years, Ramses II, with all kind of contradictions. He was the one that inspired Shelley's, uh, no, Byron. His poem, no, Shelley, Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an, an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, whose shattered visage, whose who sculptor, well those passions read, which still remain. And on the pedestal, these few words appear. The poet says, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of the colossal wreck, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That was the poem, right? You know, the first time I read that poem was not in a book of poetry, not in an anthology. It was in like Avengers 67 or 73. Early on, the Avengers had just defeated Ultron. <laughs> and Ultron, I'm looking in this book that I got, one of the books I got that weighed a lot it's called uh egypt e egyptologist notebooks this is where all the white people that went into the nile valley in the 19th century the early part of the 19th century they were basically there to loot i mean they were there to study too but they were taking stuff back taking uh tekken or stella uh to obelisks back to europe 
taking as much stuff, taking mummies. These cats was eating mummies. Called Egypt, there's a book called Egyptomania that kind of gives you a pop of the gloss on this. But let me see if I can find very quickly Abu Simbel because that's where we went. The poem Ozymandias is about Ramses. And the idea is, I don't care how big you are as a ruler. As old folks, you say in the church, that awful day will surely come. When you ain't gonna be here no more, you're gonna be wherever we go after this. And you wait a century or two and everybody with and forgot you. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Well, guess what? Ain't nobody here to look on it who remember it. Because our memory is terrible. But he's still talking about George Washington is your father. I'm, I'm still trying to understand it. Yeah, I won't be able to find it quickly. Because otherwise I would show you all what Abu Simbel looked like when the sand. Ha, let me see. Mm, Ramses II. Yeah, because they, this is when they didn't have photographs. So they're taking a, they're, they're drawing. And, oh, let me see. If I can find it quickly. Oh, wait, this is a. No, this is a drawing of it, Abu Simbel and the temple, temple for Nefertari. But sand had covered much of it, and there's a whole excavation, there's a whole rescue of that temple because they flooded out where, where we were. Monday night, I'll show you all of this if y'all are in Nubia. So y'all come, we're gonna have a conversation about that. But you know, being in that space, many of us, many of us who have been here from jump in class. And then in narrative and in Nubia, the three years we didn't go to Kemet, we jailbroke the black university. And we can see some of the results now to date. We got a glimpse of it. The Pyramid brothers who were there, these brothers ate together, traveled together, riding, talking together. I'm sitting with them talking about child rearing, talking about bringing the next generation. It was powerful. Now that let me do what I haven't been able to do in three years, which was to come back here and rewrite my syllabus, syllabi with renewed focus and vigor. And you hear here first. September, we're going to do the Introduction to African Studies class again on Monday nights, first hour of office hour. Going to be completely transformed. Going to be completely transformed. In my law class, I sat there, rewrote, and then we had the conversation Wednesday night, every Wednesday night through the end of November. You know, how are we going to be grappling with these questions of what has happened since the spring 23 class? All those Supreme Court cases, the 14th Amendment case. Of course, my friend Sherlyn Eiffel is now on faculty at Howard. I'm looking forward to all those conversations we're going to have in the political climate, none of which we had in Kemet. But being in Kemet allowed me to remember and to ground in what it looks like to have a society where the law is differently imagined. We're going to talk about that in about two minutes. I'm going to put my timer on. We're thinking about this. In my introduction, uh, uh, in my introduction to African studies class, my education in Black America class, and my Black aesthetics class and undergrads, we're going to rethink of that. Because, you know, it was just funny. I was moving some stuff around, and I, you know, this is a book that was published back in the 70s. This is 1976, writing about Black literature, Chester Fontenot, who's still around. He's in Georgia teaching now. This is what Chester Fontenot says about reading. In 1976, he says, obviously, such a proposal for deep dives into black literature is formidable. It's a formidable undertaking, especially when one considers that with the rise in te of technology, film, TV, and the like, students have all but abandoned the serious study of literature as an important way of gaining cultural knowledge. We in elementary school, pro, you, me, bunch of us, he's writing this in 1976. He's worried about people not seriously studying literature. He says, this stampede away from literature is joined by those who have waited for the appropriate moment to escape the quote-unquote Miss Grundy's in the English profession, the sticklers for reading. 
He says, in short, students are less capable of reading with comprehension and of writing effectively than they have been in previous years. Despite opposing claims that students are at least more sophisticated than they have been in the past and that they are better able to communicate verbally than previous generations. Professor Fontenot, brother, says, I am not willing to grant that students express themselves more coherently while speaking than when writing. Such a proposal threatens to widen the gap between verbal and written modes of expression, which I would like to close. Me too, brother. That was 1976. I was 11 years old. I'm 58 years old now, going back in the classroom, facing with chat GPT. So that's a different question I got to raise now. The question now isn't whether they're better or worse with writing. The question is, what happens when writing is taken out of the equation? Mm. What the hell? What do you do with that? Okay, did you read that? Did you write that? That ain't the question no more. Do you need to read or write it is the question. So I have to rethink that, focusing on literacy without literacy. The astonishing performance of mastery without acquisition of mastery. Everybody a master now, which means nobody master because nobody took the time. Damn it, is a study in what you do when you have time as young Sankara as Larry Crow, the second night we were there. How do you become gods? As, as you titled it, the conversation we had last week. What do you do when you have the time? This journey was highly concentrated. It was very intense and not without fraught moments and challenges because COVID ain't over. We had some people who had a couple of COVID challenges. We had elders. We got several doctors. Shout out to the doctors who went with us, who jumped in the fray and did that work to help us get through that. Something we learned. We got a plan for that going forward. It's all possible because the CDC say you got to treat it like the flu. Yeah, but it still means isolation. It still means you got to check yourself. Still got means you got to test. Still means you got to mask up. These are challenges. But the key theme, again, that race is not the issue. That we're not back mapping race into antiquity is very important. We're not going to get sucked in by that stuff on the wall. So here's the challenge. As you know, as the, we think about countries now in 2024, in the so-called modern world, the contemporary world. But as this concept and network of states dissolves, today's front page of the New York Times, Joe Biden trying to get Japan and South Korea to stop beefing with each other so they can go against China. And New York Times thinks that part of it is because he's worried that if uh, Donald Trump get back in power, he would mess it up. But guess what? For all intents and purposes, the nation state, as we think about it, is disintegrating around the edges. Deals are being made across state borders. We had long conversations about the struggle in Africa now in the Sahel, because we were in Egypt. We're on the east side, but right below Egypt is Sudan. And from Sudan in the east all the way through to Guinea in the west, those countries are in various forms of struggle. Deborah Heard gave a brilliant conversation about the relationship of Nubia to, to Kemet, Nubia to Egypt. It was flat foot brilliant. And one of the reasons that she, Solange Ashby, uh, my sister Solange, all of them, the reason why they can't go down there and do study the way they want to now is because it ain't safe. The Sudan is where Nubia sits, southern Egypt, northern Sudan. And you can't go on the digs because you can't, your, your safety can't be guaranteed. We've talked about that work, but the, but the nation states that we knew growing up, those things are fraying around the end. Now, the question is, how can we prioritize the lessons we can learn from studying ourselves through time and space and use that liberated memory 
to create new forms of governance in a world that is being renegotiated as we speak. It's not about appealing to the old structures. Those old structures are falling apart. The ways of knowing we have, we have to prioritize the ones that we inhabit. Prioritize the things that we have done that have kept us here, that have allowed us to celebrate, that have allowed us to resist. Pay attention to those things and then interrogate them. What Kemet does, what Egypt does is provide us with another set of archetypes. That's what it does. You know, Bolivia gave a talk on gender that displaced gender. We can't talk about gender the same way once we begin to look at the Egyptian worldviews and then see how we continue with echoes of these things throughout the African continent in the Caribbean and Latin America, Africans in North America, Europe. We see gestures toward that and it sparked the conversation that continued for the rest of the trip. It sparked conversations about this, you know. So when we go to these places, you know, we understand that each one of the places sparks another kind of conversation. Again, you know, Deb talked about the relationship of Nubia to Egypt. Kush, Meroway, Aksum. She talked about the rulers of, and Angie Porter gave her talk. She talked about genealogy and relationships and she talked about the fact, she don't say kings and queens, say rulers. Say those who are responsible for the management of state of affairs because to even gender that becomes something that throws you off children when you're looking at the agenda. They had female pharaohs. Pharaoh's not a gender term. Don't call Hatshepsut a female king or a queen. Call it a ruler. Call it a perwa, the great house. And in fact, we think about that, we can think about the Kush, the sisters who ruled in Kush. There were seven, like five that we know of. In fact, I'm looking around because, oh man, obviously I wasn't going to take this with me because this would have taken up all the weight. This book is uh, about 1,200 pages. In fact, it's called the Oxford Handbook of Ancient Nubia. It's a great place if you want a one-stop compendium to talk about Nubia. Nubia is the mother of Kemet. Nubia and Egypt are part of each other. They all are African, are African societies. I was looking around because I thought I had pulled Solange Ashby's book. In fact, I'm pretty sure I had, but I don't know what I did. Well, here we are. Calling out to Isis, the enduring Nubian presence at Philae. We went to the temple of Isis at Philae. This is, this is Solange Ashby's book. Solange talks about this as well. Amanatore, one of the queens. Uh, Amanarensis, another of the queens of Nubia. We're talking about Primeroway. We're talking about up the Nile Valley toward inner Africa, Blue Nile, White Nile. White Nile from Uganda, Blue Nile coming out of Ethiopia, meeting up in Khartoum and then flowing down into the Mediterranean. I'm doing down because the Nile runs this way. And so and, and on Monday night, we'll look at those maps again because we started up there in Cairo. We came down into Luxor. Then we went all the way down to Eswan and got on a bus and drove four and a half hours to Abu Simbel, which is right next to the border with Sudan. It's very important to understand each one of those places. So I'm going to spend uh, just about five minutes talking about this. The, the, the people of Egypt didn't mix and mingle with anybody other than other people who were in Africa. So you talk about who did that. You got to look up the Nile River. You got to look at those people that look like minute bold people. <laughs> you understand? That's where you see all of the foundations. And they come into the Nile Valley. And the Nile Valley was once part of a, a lush Greenland that expanded beyond the Nile Valley when there was still rainfall in that region. Oh, Deb did an incredible job on the geology. In fact, there's a book I picked up while I was there. I got it right here. It's called A Gift of Geology. Ancient Egyptian Landscapes and Monuments. You're talking about human beings solving problems 
in real time on how you survive in an environment that can be harsh and unforgiving and can also be incredibly green and lush and be such a star. We standing on the Nile with the greenery. Then we go out into the desert and then you can see the green, 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 boom, desert. The hell? But at one time, it expanded because of the rainfall. So you go back 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years. You go back to the last 10,000 years, the desertification, the people start coming into the Nile Valley. It's an entirely African conversation. You want to talk about a melting pot? Forget this criminal enterprise called United States of America. Talk about Egypt. A melting pot of people from the African continent coming into that place and building something that is yet to be replicated that is the foundation for so much of what we have done since. So the sites, every time I go to a site, I, I pay attention after I'm humming it to what I'm humming. My man Sean was playing John Coltrane and coming in the pyramid. But I'm humming stuff to myself. I ain't putting no ear pods in. I want to hear the guides. Like I said, we were with um, some incredible guides. And so I want to hear what Abdul got to say. And they have something they call whispers. It's the microphones. Because we had so many people say, they gave us these record, these microphone pieces in our earphones. And we could listen. I never put those in. Why? Because I can hear. I want to hear everything. I want to hear the birds. I want to hear the wind. I want to hear Abdul talking. So I'm never going to be far away from you, brother, because I don't like these things in my ear. And the meanwhile, I'm walking through the temple of uh, for Isis at Filet, and I hear myself. Humming, oh Mary, don't you weep? Why? Because Mary, the Virgin Mary, was Isis before. When the Romans came in there, you see where they chipped her out the wall because they said this is pagan. But then they took the template and put it in Mary. What they didn't chip out was the Madonna and child. You didn't chip out Eru being breastfed by his mama all set on the wall. You converted this temple into a church, and there was a there, there, there's a there's an altar. The, the Egyptians invented the altars. The altars at the White Chapel, the altars at the Temple of Isis at Filet, the double altars at Kamambo, the Healer's Temple. And you say, now you go to Notre Dame, you can't look at that again no more. If I had a penny for every time somebody came out of a temple and said, I can't go back and look at these things anymore the same way. No, you can't. It's one thing to see it in a book. It's nothing to be standing there in it. How old is this? Oh, this is about 3,000 years old. Damn. What? So, yeah, I mean... Standing in the temple, standing in the tomb of uh, the, the mortuary tomb of Patahotep, standing in, underneath the pyramid of Teti and reading the pyramid texts, seeing the, the mortuary temple, the Mastaba of Kagemi, who was the chief justice of the six districts of what became what we know now in the United States, the Supreme Court, the circuit courts. Kagemi was the guy in charge of all the district courts. He's the chief justice of the Egyptian judiciary. And he's writing about what it means to be law, have law. In fact, there's a great book that I recommend if you can find it. It might be out of print. I hope not. Constance Hillard, Dr. Hillard did a great job. Intellectual Traditions of Pre-Colonial Africa. This isn't Asa Hillard. This is Constance Hillard. It was published by McGraw-Hill. The reason I love this book is because it's all primary documents. And so if you want children to understand, here's Pharaonic Egypt, part one. Part two, ancient Nubia. Part three, Hellenized Egypt and Nubia. Part four, Byzantine and Roman, Romanized Carthage and Numidia. Part five, Byzantine, Coptic, and Islamic North Africa. All primary documents. Part six, Ethiopia and Somalia. Part seven, West Africa. Part eight, Central Africa. Part nine, East Africa. Part ten, Southern Africa. She picks documents throughout the full range of the last 5,000 years of African experiences and puts it in a book called Intellectual Traditions of Pre-Colonial Africa. I have no time. For the first conquistador, I'm sorry. 
I had no time for the first Negro that fought with George Washington. I have no time for the first Negro that went to Harvard. There were no universities in Europe before the learning institutions of Africa. And we predate that by millennia. Our value of education didn't come after we came out of slavery and said, God, I got to go to school. Don't if you start your history with that, you will always be a figment of the white imagination and you will never be free. But we get a couple of people together, change somebody's mind. So I'm paying attention to what I'm humming as I'm coming into spaces. The Museum, the Museum of Egyptian Civilization was in there looking at the uh, prosthesis. Look at his toe. The mummified foot, but that's the first prosthesis in world history. That toe looked black to me. <laughs> that looked like the toe of all black people. Big toe, all black. That's a prosthesis. The oldest wooden prosthetic toe in the world. Saw that in real time. This is a children's book, by the way. Medicine and Papery of Our Egyptian Ancestors. Very important. But they also had in the Museum of, 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 of uh, Egyptian Civilization, the so-called royal mummy. Sahu is the word in ancient Egyptian. We had long conversations about how disturbed we felt about looking at our ancestors. Not replicas. They didn't rebury our people. Now, I have no interest in digging up George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. I have no interest in digging up Victoria. But damn. You got hatchets that on display. You got, and I ain't gonna show y'all the, the, the Saku, uh, almost Nefertari on display, Ramses the third on display, Marin Ptah on display, some of the major Jehudi most the third and fourth, and Ramses the second on display. I'm looking at school children looking down in their face. And Miss Carter, you know, Angela Carter, I said my TA, she's all of 110 pounds or 15, maybe 120 pounds, and she just ate. And she, she parked herself at the head of like Seti the first and just refused to move this little this little slip of a thing and made them scout some children who were in there on Saturday and they, they move around her. You're just not going to disrespect the ancestors because they was talking loud. You know, mm -mm. Mm -mm. and I said, you all right, Miss Carter? She said, I'm all right. I just feel some kind of way. And she wasn't alone. How do we feel when we look down in the faces of our ancestors, the indigenous people? And we talked that night about the indigenous folk who have fought to get their ancestors back, about the South Africans who said, you're going to give us back Sardi Bartman, French. And so the so-called Venus Hottentot in the social structure language was brought back to South Africa, given a state funeral. The Herero people in, uh, in Libya and others say, you know, y'all going to get them skulls off display up there in the Germans. Y'all going to bring our people back. And then we're still looking at the pharaohs. Now, it, it, it cuts both ways. I'll come back to that in a second, realizing what time it is. I almost kind of wind this up in a second. Some of the other sites, the White Chapel of Sun Wall Street. Oh, my goodness. That's where we had the libation. That was so powerful. I, I'll say less about that. That libation was so powerful for all of us. That's the White Chapel. That's the place my mom prayed. In fact, y'all indulge me for a second because I'm going to get this photograph that I keep on my one of my other working desks. I'm going to bring it and show it to y'all. This is when my mom went. I think it was 2010. <clears throat> this is my mother praying at the altar at the White Chapel. Stone Cold Christian. That's the White Chapel, which was erected by St. Rosrit the First. This was in the Middle Kingdom of Kemet. So we're talking about, about 4,000 years ago. My mama born on a pallet on the floor, Russell County, Alabama. Went to the, uh, the, the the Russell County Training School, Rosenwald School. For our 80th birthday, we put our money together. My sister, my brother, and I put it together and took her. We took her. My sister went with her. 
a lot of husbands and wives went with us, a lot of couples, a lot of one brother and sister came. They were so cute. They was together the whole time. Families came. It was just a beautiful thing. Uh, sons and mothers, mothers and daughters. We talk about that a little bit on Monday night because I suspect a couple of those uh, couples going to come into space and you know who you are. I'm going to ask you right now. But Mara, my mom said, let me come do a prayer here. She got her report libation. She said, now I'm going to go up here and pray on that altar. You understand? So when you start talking about coming down on the altar and they come to Mona's bench, that's where it starts. My mom 80 years old, so I know what this is. I know exactly what this is. And so that white chapel, whoo, we were at Waset, the scepter, power. The Greeks called it thieves. Uh, there are a couple of good books if you ever want to do some stuff on the temple. I pulled a couple of things just so people could have references. In fact, this is a decent book. Thieves in Egypt, a guide to the tombs and temples of ancient Luxor. Uh, Kent Weeks also did a great guidebook on thieves. If you can get your hand, W-E-E-K-S. Talking with your brother at a booties. We're sitting there talking. He said Kent Weeks used to come in there all the time. And they would they would have conversation. Mm. Important American Egyptologist. But as Deborah Heard reminded us, she said, I just do my work. I don't argue with Egyptologists. Deborah Heard and her colleagues who have put together the William Leo Hansberry Society. That's a story for another day. I think I talked about it a little bit last week, so I won't go on. But at that white chapel, you see the power of the thinking class. It was the priests. It was the thinking classes and thieves and Waset that held the center of power, even when pharaohs came and went sometimes. So much so that by the 25th dynasty, when you see Pianchi and them come in around 700, 750 BCE, 2700 years ago, and they come down the Nile to restore order from, order from Nubia, he stops. Constance Hilliard Constance got the document in her book. He stops at Thebes. He said, y'all got to wash me. Y'all got to dress me. I got to shave. I got to come in here and worship Amun, Amun-Ra, because I am paying respect to y'all. What is he doing? He's doing it because he says, as a Nubian, I know what this society is. I am the son of Amun-Ra. I am here to restore order and drive out these invaders. But he's also doing it. It's a brilliant move politically. Because once you get the intelligentsia on your side and Kemet, you can stand because you can't you can't short the priesthood. In fact, there are a couple of rebellions we talked about while we were there as well. That white chapter, uh, white chapel, Metnet Habu. I talked about that last week. What happens in the 20th dynasty after Ramses at 67 years old passes away and his sons start taking the throne, you begin to see the deterioration of the Egyptian state. Imperialism. We, we don't need to talk about empire in terms of World War I, World War II, 30 years war, 100 years war. Sure, talk about all that, but talk about it in terms of African foundations. What hubris is hubris regardless of culture what can we learn from a society that engaged in expansion in a way that might not have been the best thing you know i got a popular book while i was there as well one of the more popular books ancient egyptian warfare tactics weaponry and ideology of the pharaohs ian shaw and he writes about in here jehudi most the third who came on the throne after hatshepsut and ramses the second you know what were their motives what was the motive was it expansion was it protection was it self-defense it's very important so at Medinet Habnu, we see something that they call the harem conspiracy. Ramses' own wife turned against him. The third, Ramses the third. And that is arguably the last high point in the 20th dynasty. You just see this steady kind of decline in Egyptian power. And you see the people in the Nile Valley begin to do for themselves. Hey, look at the United States and look at how these states are starting to go rogue. 
You need to study the United States in the context of the U.S., but you can look at it in the long arc of world history as well. And you don't have to start with AP European history. We have a history. Well, y'all in West Africa, not East Africa. Okay, let's connect West Africa to East Africa. So many scholars have written about it. Very important. In December, there's going to be a major conference celebrating the 100th anniversary of the birth of Sheikh Antejo in Dakar, Senegal, University of Sheikh Antejo. We hope to be there. We hope to present there. And there's going to be a conversation that's being had. Frank Frazier was like, in 1962, they're talking about these big issues. What are we talking about? The race problem. Jacob Carruthers, in fact, that's why Jacob Carruthers in Intellectual Warfare uses E. Franklin Frazier's uh, article, uh, essay, as a point of departure to talk about how we have this fragmented philosophy. So why don't you close one of my favorite places. There are two places that are very much, I, I just have favorites. One is Set Ma'at. Set Ma'at. Set Ma'at is what it was called by the people. Uh, it is known now in Egypt as Deir el Medina, the workers' village. Not the workers' village, really. It's the craftsperson's village. It's arguably the first artist colony in world history. This is where the people who built the tombs, who wrote the metanature on the tombs, who designed the tombs, the architects for the buildings, that's where they live. And, and there's a good book called Pharaoh's Workers by Leonard Lesko, who edited edited volume. It's called Pharaoh's Workers, the Villages of Deir el Medina. And you go into these tombs that are there, there are a couple of tombs of administrators who are there, and they are exquisitely done. Because they were done by the people who worked for these people. And you see, it raises the question of the working class in society. There are classes in, of course, Egypt. Talk about everybody. Yeah, people say now, why y'all going to Egypt? Y'all want everybody want to be a king and queen? Hey, 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 you've opened your mouth, and your brain is on full display. Marcus Garvey said, "Don't talk about stuff you don't know about," especially so confidently. Now people are laughing at you, and I'm one of them. They're all gonna laugh at you because we talk about class and set my eye. These workers went on strike. Maybe the first recorded strike in world history. These are the people without whom there would be no tombs and numbers. They said, oh, hell no, we're not, we're not going to work anymore until we get the tools we need, until we get improvement of conditions, until we compensate it more, until we have better living conditions. And you stand there and you hear the wind. All you can hear, and it's dead quiet. And I'm listening for the music in my head as I'm watching this scene cinematically. It's very important, the question of literacy. And at the Luxor Museum, we saw they had a couple of, uh, of mummies, a couple of Sahu. One is of Amos. Amos is the cat in the 18th dynasty to help drive out the Hyksos. But here's the thing. Just like in Nubia, there were women who sat on the throne as rulers. In Kemet, there were women who sat on the throne as rulers as early as the old kingdom. We're talking about 45, 4,600 years ago. Now, one of these women came to power because her son was not yet old enough to take off. Her son was Amos. He eventually became the pharaoh. But the regent, the woman who ruled until it was time for him to do it, his mother, oh, that sister, she's not there. Her name is Ahotep. Ahotep. Ahotep fought the Ixos, fought the Amu. She helped lead the army. In fact, when she was the ruler, she was commander of the army, and she won commendations for her bravery for her work for her strategic work in driving out the invaders then her son came of age and he finished the job most of the child will put it on Amos his wife was Amos Nefertari her mummy's in the Egyptian uh, Museum of Egyptian uh, Civilization and we said we hate looking at this wait a minute hold on, let me look at her okay I don't want to look wait let me look wait her hair curly her curly black hair her braided up hair not curly braided braided I mean, I don't, 
And it's like, this is a trap. This woman should be allowed to rest in peace. But she's here. We looking like, my God, here come these school children talking loud. And like, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I ain't gonna do that. Not while I'm standing here. Increasingly feeling some kind of way. But in the museum in Luxor, they had on display some of her battle medals, commendations. They used to give out these golden flies. Well, later on, a couple of days later, we went to one of the jewelry stores. So I wanted to get some jewelry, get some chenou, whatever. So I'll go over here and look. And I'm looking in the cases. All right. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Hey, you you got... She said, oh, people don't really ask for this one. I said, that's all right. Give it to me. It's the battle medal. <laughs> These are the silver bat. This is a silver version. You know, they had gold. This is the silver battle medal that we saw on a necklace in uh the luxor museum you see the little lotus at the top no, that's at the that's the head that's the, that's the head of the uh the the fly and they give these flies and it's got a little class to it if you want to make it into a a necklace so the luxor museum i love going in the luxor museum they have the writing tools for the scribes they got this beautiful alabaster statue of seti the first it's very very important and of course there are other places we went dendera where we saw the zodiac the Temple of Horus at Edfu, which really is a place where you understand a very basic principle in comedic ways of knowing. No one is above the law. You say, well, you know above the law. Yeah, a lot of people are above the law in the United States, but not in Kemet. Even the Pharaoh, nobody's above the law. That's why when Pianchi came down there, or Shabaka, rather it is, in 25th Dynasty, he came down with the Shabaka stone, the so-called Memphite theology. He's like, this is the order of the universe. My eye lies in it. And I spent more money than I should have, but my man... You know, hook me up. This is a book called The Presentation of My Eye, Ritual and Legitimacy in Ancient Egypt. This is Emily Teeter's book. I got this book because there's a lot of conversation in here around Abidus, my second favorite place. Set My Eye is one of them. Abidus is the other, or Abdu, or Abydos. This is Seti the First presenting my eye to God. See, there's with Seer, and behind him, you see uh, Isis or, uh, uh, or Aset with the Het Heru crown. The Het Heru crown, we had to talk about another day, the temple of Het Heru or Horus, uh, sorry, uh, Hathor. Talk about Hathor, the so-called cow goddess, but her name in Metanetra is Het Heru. And when you see, let me see, here's Heru behind her, in fact. Uh, but let me see, I don't think they have her name here. No, because this is Isis, Isis with the Het Heru crown. When you see the name for Hathor, as the Greeks would say Hathor, Het Heru, it is a box. And inside the box is the falcon. The falcon is Heru, her husband. The box is her. She is literally the house of Heru. See, we're going to keep messing around with these Europeans talking about all this stuff, feminism, black feminism, womanism. Or you can look at the Egyptian. How do you even say the name? How do you even deal with gender when there is no word for wife? They would say, oh, wife. That ain't a wife. That's not a wife. That's a house. Mm. And if she go away, he's finished. In other words, what is the relationship between a woman and man in relationship? The house of Heru. In other words, I'm Heru and this is my wife. No, I'm Heru and here where I live. <laughs> you understand? It will change the way. And as I'm standing there, look, mm. you know what's going through my mind? That eight million, uh, eight minute version of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. I miss you. <laughs> I got another job. I know, I know you don't believe me, but. I swear it didn't change. Yeah, because you ain't got nowhere to live. This is the house of Heru. <laughs> you understand? This is your house. You done messed up. You don't just miss her. You can't live without one of the words for wife that they would, the Europeans would translate as wife is Hemet. That's on the wall at Abu Simbel. That's the wall where you see 
almost, you say Nefertari, the wife of Ramses, wife, it's a well of water. What is water to somebody in the desert? They translate that as wife. No, just translate it literally, well of water. <laughs> in other words, what is the relationship? Massage and noir, if you want to address massage and noir, don't look to the Greeks. Forget Lysistrata. Don't go to Wonder Woman in the Amazon. Go home. My God, how much more will it take? And so school starts. K-12 and college started. We talked about Garvey's birthday. We talked about the fact that he's talking about literacy. And if you bring it in for a landing for this Saturday, it reminds me that I read an article. You probably saw it, Prof. Uh, it said half the people and over half of young people use subtitles when they're watching movies. Because they said the sound is quality is bad. And I'm saying, I know a lot of people who watch subtitles too, but I just wonder how, what we're doing when it comes to being able to focus, even being able to listen. Studying that nature requires you to slow down. Mm -hmm. You know, the process is sit with it. Sit with it. Don't make it easy. Listen. No doubt the work begins when we return. Now the work of what we did the last two weeks will now begin to pay off. It's going to show up in our work. It's going to show up in how we work. That is the fight. And that's why, even with the AP course, the critics of the AP course, Robin Kelly, Kiangi, Amata Taylor, so many others, a lot of legitimate criticism. But one of the things they say is that, you know, this AP course in African-American studies, it talks about ancient Africa because that's no threat. The reason it may not be the threat it should be is because we haven't taken the time of tying deep time Africa. I mean, I'm, I'm even going to stop saying classical or ancient Africa. We haven't taken the time and done the work to tie deep time Africa to now. As we do that, we then begin to realize we're not studying the African past to feel good, although that's a residual effect. We're studying it for what it has to teach us about what it means to be human in the world and how to build a better society because they pulled it off. Problems and all. Problems and all. We've got to be able to do that. So uh, we'll start in September. We're going to redo the Introduction to African Studies course. I've been retooling it based on the first time we did it. It's going to be some similar stuff, but it's also going to be a lot of different stuff. And uh, we got a renewed work focus now. We're going to do that. And um, and so now, even though school started, there's a book, new book on August Wilson that came out that I've been reading that you know I'm very happy. And the only thing is I got all my mail stopped, but something snuck through. Two things snuck through, actually. When I got back home, these were in the mailbox. And I saw, I saw, I thought I stopped. I did, but they got through before the stop. Um, Fatima El Meki, uh, Sharice's uh, wife, got uh, their daughters, got, got their daughters, um, Zakia and Zainab. And they put together a little 30 some page book. And there's Fatima there on the back. This little mm -hmm. book. Our grandparents were members of the Black Panther Party. <laughs> Fatima. This is a great little book. These two right here have a conversation about their grandparents. And of course, uh, it's beautiful because their grandfather uh, is still here. Her grand, uh, Their grandmother is an ancestor, uh, Baba Khaled. Uh, there's Khaled as a younger man there. And here he is uh, with his daughters at last year's Black Male Educator Conference. Good brother right there. That's uh, Sharif's father. You say, we like combing his beard, this kind of thing. Let me show you uh, their grandmother. There they are together uh, before she made transition. Mm. And, you know, as the baby putting her fist up. So that, that snuck through. And the last thing that snuck through, I'm so happy about this. 
um, she wrote me a little note and, uh, you know, obviously I wrote her back and, and, and I will see her on the 15th. On the 15th of September at one o'clock at Temple, the memorial for Charles, the public memorial for Charles Blackson will be held. And um, Noel, his daughter, um, you know, we, it was just a beautiful thing. She actually sent me and uh, her cousin, Alex Mitchell, had reached out. One of my former students who's now at the California African-American Museum, who went to study abroad with us when we went to South Africa um, years ago. I guess it was around 2007 or so. Alex, just a first rate just a good sister, brilliant uh, parents, Philly, Philly born and raised her. She's cut. That's her cousin, Noel. And of course, Mr. Bloxon always talked about Noel. We were talking we were talking, exchanging notes, but she mailed me a copy of the private uh, ceremony program. So this is uh, Mr. Bloxon's uh, program from his obituary. At this point, I got so many obituaries over there. There, Chuck Brown, Marion Barry. I don't even want to think about it. But this, this is the two of them. It's the centerpiece. There's Noel when she was a little girl with him, of course. And uh, you know, I will see her. So this is him playing football. One of the four horsemen. Probably people know the name Lenny Moore or Rosie Greer. You know what I'm saying? Charles Bloxham was a star football player at Penn State. There he is, getting ready to put that work, giving that work out. But he he didn't he he didn't play pro football. He was a um, all state shot putter, discus thrower. But he was a book collector, and and then when he had a chance to try out for the New York Giants, uh, he walked away from it. He said, "I'm not going to be a professional athlete. I got other work to do." So they had the uh, the ceremony in June, and here of course is uh, him sitting under a portrait of Paul Lawrence Dunbar with his book. So I mean, it's just a beautifully done program uh, these are all the 13 books that he worked on i was blessed enough to help him with a few of these books including most specifically his memoir damn rare there where my thumb is and uh the back of course is him mr bloxon so thank you noel love you i'll see you on the 13th on the 15th on the 15th at temple and so just letting y'all know spread the word if you're anywhere around temple you'll get a chance to to celebrate the life of Charles Bloxham. So I will end with that. Um, first of all, um, y- your chair is stolen focus for some people. Um, I know, I know. Okay, well, look, the one wait, wait, that on, I have from you, I can now put it together. That's all right. <laughs> I was going to say, he has a chair. I think he likes this chair. Uh, no, and I so, just... And a chair is still a chair, even if there's no one sitting there. Come on now. You know, I'm just, let the man's chair squeak. It is part of the, the program if you are comfortable in that chair, sir, you do not have to put together the new chair that you have or all Actually, of this. you know what you just did? You just, you just, uh, Professor Hunter, I think the linguists might call that a semantic translation. Because typically, Hathor, the Greeks would call her, Het Heru, would be translated as the house of Heru. But what you have just reminded us, perhaps we should translate it as the home of Heru. Because a house is not a home. I think, I think you just gave us a new way of thinking that. See, that that's why the momentum of memory is important. I think you just retranslated the home of the home of Heru. That's what it should be. Damn, that's what it should be. That's brilliant. A chair is still a chair, <laughs> even if there's no one sitting there. But a room is not a house, and a house is not a home. When there's no one there. Come on now. Yes, 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 yes. So hold me tight. 
<laughs> you better look. You know what? Next time I go to the Temple of Hederu, that's gonna be playing in my yes. head. <laughs> and this is this is the work. This is what we oh, do. You know, the momentum of memory. I can't thank you enough. Um, you know, somebody was like, I have to sit here and you know, the, the process of building and growing and building and growing, it's never ending. And sometimes I get overwhelmed because I'm like, well, I have enough time to do everything because every day that I sit with you, there's more things to do. You know, it's like, oh, now we have to build this system. Now we have, how do we even do that? You know, there's a lot of people got opinions about things we need to do, but the work is in sitting and building the architecture that will allow it to live for thousands of years as I'm watching these structures still exist. The, the steps y'all took, the places you went, thousands of years because somebody sat and planned those pyramids took 20 years most of them 20 years and a lot of those projects got abandoned because they weren't perfect and got started all over again many of us aren't even willing to do that with our own lives period right what you just just said is so important because one of the things we talked about everywhere we went in the pyramid age because they talk about the bent pyramid of sneferu but mario it was brilliant he he's reading some recent scholarship and he said now there seems to be an emerging consensus that it wasn't that Sneferu made builders made a mistake. They were trying to make one of the pyramids represent the white crown of Upper Kemet, and the red pyramid represent the red crown of Lower Kemet. That's what they think, but but that's not the point. What you just raised is the point. We had a whole conversation about failure. Said so the lesson of Egypt is failure. In other words, you ain't going to do it right. You know how many thousands of years it takes you to get to the point where you can put 1.3 million stones in perfect alignment with no mortar. You didn't just wake up and do that. You got to see the practice pyramids. And there are more pyramids, in, by the way, as we know, in Sudan than there are in Egypt. But you just raised it. It isn't the question of success. This is this society wants. No, it's the question of failure. Failure is the foundation for progress. It isn't success. You will get to success as long as you don't let failure stop you. That's a a very important point. (laughs) (sighs) On that note, uh, first of all, welcome back. I'm glad you're in good health. Uh, I uh, wish you well on your classes. uh, My semester starts in a couple of weeks, and uh, I have completely tossed my syllabi in the garbage. We are doing something completely different this semester. So if you're taking my class, you know, come ready or, or leave. You know, that's just oh, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not making room for anything other than what we're, we're going to do. So, you know, you know, how kids have expectations of things and, Absolutely. you know, the very rigid ways in which they want to learn. No, 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 no. This is this is going to be an exercise in fluidity and flexibility this semester. So I'm looking forward to that. And I wish I could take your law class. So, no, no, no. You can you have come in sometime. We, I don't, we, we'll have to create some virtual spaces. Or or maybe maybe in the future, Dr. Carr, you can teach a law class within uh, Nubia. I'll get some of my friends because this is a crazy thing. Of the people that went to Kemet, Angie Porter got a law degree. Derek Herb, my classmate, got a law degree. Belithia got a law degree. We got enough time. And of course, Angie's building that African legal studies. We could have that class here. We, yeah, let's see. Okay. Say that. I already reached out to Cat Adams, so Okay. Uh, and, and, and Valithia is, is on deck and Dr. Ba- um, Dr. Black is on deck. Like we have, we already are lining up the Avengers. So I feel like uh, it's, it's about to go down. No oh, question. It's already down. But it's already you know, down. Uh, Ten love, you. Down. love you too. Love, love you. y'all. See y'all Monday right. night. Yes, oh, well, sir. I'll actually see you tomorrow. Maroon's Medicine Chest. Right. And, and then and then you on and Monday then, night. And then yeah, Dr. Yeah. Beatty on Tuesday. Beatty and, and on and on. Yes, we indeed. Keep going oh, oh, the Nubians who teach yoga too, in addition to the class, 
were there in the Nile Valley. They were there with Brother Jabari Osazi and then we saw them in the Nile Valley. And I, and I should tell everybody what I said to you. We were in, don't go anywhere, we were in, um, where were we? Wasset, we were in Thebes. And I heard Dr. Carr. And these people started screaming. They come walk to us. They were over there with Jabari Osazi and his family. It was a bunch of people over there. And uh, Tony Bradley just came back. Ashra Kwesi was there while we were there. A bunch of people going back. The first thing they said was, y'all, here's he, yeah. We were, tell Karen Hunter, I don't miss her show. I'm talking about we in Egypt, in a temple, and they, <laughs> they're talking about tell Karen Hunter. I don't, thank you. I'm glad you read, because that pricked my memory. I mean, it was unbelievable. I just wanted to pass it on. So I, I did my due diligence, sis. I told her. Okay. <laughs> and now it's public record. Uh, public record. <laughs> and so I'll see some of y'all uh, on the Karen Hunter show on Urban View. Larie's yeah. there as well. So come on through uh, Monday uh, at 10. She's 10 a.m. I'm at 3 p.m. And in between is a whole bunch of other goodness. So, uh, and of course, Joe Maps. I love you, Dr. Carr. Love you too. Let's All right. See y'all.